Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 200th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that spent 500 plus hours telling you we're the fastest wits in the game. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. It occurs to me that you, we always say, you always say, as my co-host, as always, but it's not always me, right? Because Cliff was here last week, and sometimes I do it with Cliff. I'm only now realizing, after 200 episodes, that our, our script is that, that we, that, slightly off. That, that we claim that we're the super awesome ones, but Cliff does come in and help out on occasion. Yeah. Credit it, it's a disservice to Cliff. Yeah, credit where credit is due. Cliff's been here the longer than I have um, on the MTG Price team, and and we're happy to have him. For sure. Uh, I am Travis Allen uh, on Twitter, WizardBumpinBumpin. I am glad to be here. Looking forward to uh, episode 200. Quite an accomplishment, I think. Uh, not quite four years. Uh, that'll be episode 208 if we're being really technical, but no one wants to count 208, so we're going to count episode 200. Uh, still an accomplishment. I'd like to think so. And probably one of the longest running magic content streams out there i mean mtg Uh, MTG price certainly is and this podcast at 200 episodes is in at least in the finance segment is second only to brainstorm brewery the uh, granddaddies of the genre yeah i I mean so what how many episodes what are they are they at like 350 or something something like that do you know i would say you you could probably draw a line at which point they switched from <laughs> finance content to lifestyle. Not to not to d- diminish the quality of the cast. I mean, they they know what they're doing and they do it well. I'm just thinking uh, in different spaces. But I, I wonder how many pieces of me- I wonder how many pieces of media are created in Magic that have more episodes than 200. Brainstorm Brewery for sure. But beyond that, some of some of the very, some of the very consistent. Uh, YouTube content creators like Command Zone and The Professor, for sure. I mean, Tolarian Academy, I think, just passed, I want to say, 500,000 users or something. 500,000 subscribers, subscribers yeah. on uh, YouTube last week, so congrats to the prof. Is it Command? Is, it, is Commandcast that high? Like, I thought that their episode, they were on episode, like, 40 or something or other. They, they put out a lot of... Uh, other than their mainstream, though, they put out a lot of extra videos, especially since they became okay, a we... de facto propaganda arm for Wizards Marketing. Okay, the Command Zone number 302 was posted yesterday. So they definitely, all right, they've got a lot out there. In any case, 200, it's a lot. It's a lot of things. There aren't a lot of things that I've done 200 times. <laughs> this is one of them. Um, and I will here looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. 
Revenue G Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, how are your holidays going? Uh, they were not bad. They were not bad. Uh, nothing terribly exciting, but that's probably for the better. Um, nothing huge planned for New Year's either. Also, not really complaining about that. Uh, but overall, enjoying enjoying them. Um, how about yourself? Uh, Alara and Ellie got sick so on Christmas Eve, so mm. basically just pretended to be a nurse for a couple of days. Thankfully, two doctors in the family, so everybody was well taken care of. But uh, got a little behind on the massive stack of packages that I uh, had been building up down there in Ohio. I had about four months worth of specs backed up, so uh, had the pleasure of going through and finding some real smart winners like foil smugglers copters I never got around to putting up for sale some borderless okos um that are probably going to get trapped in hand i think there might have been some once upon a time foils you know um the uh the downside of uh having your packages scattered across the globe <laughs> at any given moment yeah i would imagine that represents a significant challenge to the extent that it would chill some of the purchasing decisions, you know, knowing like, all right, this would be a good purchase. This is a good purchase for somebody that can order the card today and receive it in four days. But knowing that it's going to take me one to four months to get a hold of it, and, you know, it's particularly volatile, uh, maybe it's not like right for for you to buy it, even if it's right for a listener to buy it. Because now at this point, you've definitely told me about this a lot (laughs) the number of cards that you've said like oh yeah i have these and i just never sold them because i didn't get to them soon enough is gotta be double digits the 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 overall impact on my bottom line is less than one percent the yeah um and in terms of does it inform further spec decisions the answer is yes to the extent that pioneer specs have to be considered with an eye to bannings at this point Keep in mind that when I called Oka, it was like the first week it was released. So there was no mm. no hint of bannings quite yet. Although even two weeks later, there would have been. Um, and the foil smugglers copters were probably bought the uh, three days before most people knew that format even existed. So call that karma, um, should you so choose. The, the overall process of you know picking up specs in Japan or Europe or wherever and not necessarily putting my hands on them immediately... I do tend to try to focus on longer-term stuff. If there's something that I think is going to pop quick and has to be flipped within two or three days, like, say, a standard Mythic that's taking off or a standard Rare that's coming out of nowhere and maybe is only associated with a single deck, doesn't have the pedigree to necessarily be have staying power in the format, I'm already pretty gun-shy. But Pioneer Specs in general, I'm a little more hesitant having looked over that pile of stuff. Um, I mean, Oko has to be a hard sell right now. Not not that it's not going to be a played card in the formats where it won't get banned, but I think it's probably going to get banned in Modern this year, and I don't think you want to be holding them when that happens. I think you just want to buy, if you plan on using them somewhere else, you can buy your one copy for EDH or your copies for Vintage or whatever once it hits its all-time low. 
that's so sad. I have like five of those extended art foils that were like, you know, 100 or 120, something around that, which looked so good at the time. And now it's like, uh, that's a lot worse than they were. But and it's like, you know, it is essentially, it's the best Planeswalker ever printed. So it, you're like, yeah, it's going to be banned in competitive formats, but that never really mattered for Jace the Mind Sculptor. But at the same time, Jace sort of had more of a a pedigree. He felt like he earned it. Whereas Oko was like almost an interloper that will not be remembered nearly as fondly as Jace. Yeah. So I'm not sure what decision to make here. I think I I think I know what the decision is. I just don't want to make it. Yeah, Oko feels like something like like Lifeline. Like a card that didn't seem that busted on the surface, but once you actually started fooling around with it, you realize it was just shouldn't be a magic card with the existing stat profile. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't bode well uh, in spec land. The other problem I've got that's bigger than my stuff is not in the right country right now is more about just the limitations of individual speculation if that's not your job. So I doubled my overall sales this year um into the not quite six figures and with a really good ROI that I'm pretty happy with but on the buy list side of things I was more or less I, I started outpacing um my ability to reinvest into specs via buy list and so and running out of time because I can only spend about 10 to 15 hours a week on this stuff and at that max, if I consistently am hitting that max every week and falling further and further behind in terms of posting things for sale or sorting through packages or whatever, then one of the techniques I've been using is retreating to um, safety, meaning that I take I took about 25,000 US worth of buy list credit and turned it into things like Masterpiece Soul Rings or Onslaught Foil, Onslaught Foil Fetch Lands or Expeditions. <laughs> very different set. <laughs> yeah. Expeditions or what have you. Um, some beta stuff, some, you know, Judge Foil Guys Cradles are all examples of things I buy listed into this year that are all just sitting in a box. And that box is now worth about 40, 45 grand US. And that's money that's not in play. And I don't have. To get it back in play, I have to sell those cards or trade them into specs, and then I would be back in a position where I wouldn't be able to get that stuff up for sale. And so that's just dead money. Um, And that's fine as a low, if you consider it like the bonds of the MTG finance market, something like a Judge Foil Guy's Cradle is a good retreat point because it's unlikely to go down, but it's tough for it to go up much either. Um, because mm-hmm. you, you only have a very small, you know, maybe 1% of commander players are willing to buy uh, a Judge Foil Guy's Cradle. Um, is that played in Legacy as well, in Elves? Guy's Cradle? Oh, yeah, right. for okay. sure. So between those two fairly niche audiences, the the whales of the commander community and the Legacy players that are still willing to put that kind of money into it, it's it's tough. Those things are facing a ceiling. So they are basically like the T-bills or bonds of, of this marketplace. And I don't really want to move into having staff on this side of what I do. Like staff at MTG Price is one thing. That's a functional business. But I don't love retailing enough to want to make it more than it is in 
in my current schedule. So um, it, it's a good problem to have, I suppose, but I really am kind of bumping up against my own ceiling. Well, I always wondered about that when you talk about how much you personally buy and sell and so forth. And I'm like, I feel like I'm at my limit for how much time I want to spend dealing with this every week. And I I spend and sell less than you do by a wide margin. I'm like, how does he have time to do all of this on a regular basis, especially with a child and like, you know, a real job? More power to you. But uh, people forget how much time this actually takes up. And, you know, it, it, it occurs to you when you're like, you know, you hit some spec or something like that. Or, you, you know, where I would get it is when I, I'd buy a collection. And yeah. I'd so, you know, sorting through the collection, you knew what it was going to be. So you're like, okay, fine. Like this takes time, but I knew what I was getting into when I did this. And I come out of it and I take, you know, let's say the, the three to 200 cards that I'm going to list on TCG player. Uh, you know, the rest is either not worth selling or is getting buy listed, but this 200 cards is, is valuable enough that I'm going to list them. And then like over the next week, you sell a lot of that. You know, you might sell 40% of that. And then that means your packaging, like what, 80 cards, and you're like, oh, <laughs> this takes time. And like, yeah, it's fun that I made money on all these, but like this is quickly becoming a job yeah. and this like it isn't fun anymore. And I can't tell you how many cards that I paid, you know, 60 cents for that I put into an envelope for $4 and I hated every second of them. I'm like, oh, God, this is not worth the 350 I just made doing this. Um, it adds up. There's sure. a few different strategies that I'm already employing that I intend to focus on more heading into 2020 um, to manage time that much more efficiently. One of them is to focus on bricks um, because bricks that you can flip into buy lists relatively easily that are just l- literally in a plastic brick case and never leave that. And you're not, you don't even need to spend the time to post it up for sale on eBay. You just need to fill out the buy list order, which you can, you know, do. 20 bricks into a buy list order in 10 minutes or less, if you know what you're doing. Um, focusing on that is important. Fo- putting more, even more money into sealed product flips like secret layer bundles and mythic editions and, uh, you know, War of the Spark Japanese and stuff like that, where the handling of it is both tends to be pretty short term, like the best exits and all that stuff have been within the first month, generally speaking. A big box arrives with the stuff in it. You've pre-sold it on eBay. You just got to print out your labels, put them all in smaller boxes and ship it out. Might be a couple of hours during a Netflix session. That certainly is an efficient way to, you know, handle several thousand dollars worth of product pretty quickly without too much time overhead. Um, And then focusing on less specs overall. So taking a pass on... You know, I already tell new members to MGG Price Pro Trader that have not are interested but have not spent a lot of time speculating to spend 80% of your time listening and figuring out who to listen to and you know, starting some basic spreadsheets to track what you might have done in the same way that, you know, when you're teaching students in high school about the stock market, you have them do a mock uh, you know, purchase and track it for a while. Um that practice portion and the discipline to handle less specs but go deeper when you're more certain, um, I think would help all of us. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of lessons here to keep in mind. 
Um, and we've talked about all these uh, assorted before, but uh, I guess worth keeping all that at hand because they're easy. These are all easy traps to fall into. Or the traps of doing this are easy to fall into if you aren't disciplined all the time. And yeah, I'm constantly buying stuff that like, do I really want to spend the time on, or, you know, whatever. And it's just like, this was, you know, it looks so good and I couldn't not do it. But at the same time, it's like, huh, we'll have to get rid of these now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I regretted doing this last time. So maybe, uh, you know, it's very much about do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> one of the ways, <laughs> one of the of ways it. that I prioritize what I'm going to bother to put up for sale is how many copies I have and how much total investment is involved. And what that has re- resulted in is I have something that is, uh, it's not a box of shame. It's more of a um, like island of lost toys. It's a box of one or two Z purchases where the card went from, say, $3 to $10. But I only have one or two copies. So I'm not prioritizing the time to put them up for sale. Because for other stuff, like, say, foil ice fighting quaddles, I have 20 copies. And I'm going to go 10 to 40 on them. So I'm going to put the time in to get out of those. Because the other ones might be niche commander specs or something. So I have this whole like double row long box of this stuff. I just don't have time to get up for sale. And I suspect what's going to happen down the road is it's just going to be an epic buy list where I'm just going to say, okay, I've got to send in four rows worth of stuff just to get it off the plate. And I'm going to accept that I'm not going to get full retail on it just so that I can still get a good return. And, you know, (laughs) that probably just then gets redirected into more blue chip placeholder stuff like guy is cradles but you know that's just the reality that's that's where my limit's at and everybody needs to know what their limit is and you know if you find yourself it, it's a really good problem to have where you're like oh, I've, I've got so many cards that have gone up in price that i can't find the time to sell them all i guess i'll just buy list them and sink all of it into as you said a, a blue chip type of card it's a good problem to have right you shouldn't be too upset that that's where you've landed but just be aware that that's sort of the end of the road on a lot of this and i mean this is what we talk about when we refer to the scalability of this field and like why you know neither of us have made it our full-time job nor why we want to make it our full-time job because it then you're just doing retail like and that's not what either of us are are looking for the most the most interesting part of this is analyzing a complex metagame and economic metagame side by side that's why magic finance is interesting the actual posting for sale selling packing and shipping nobody considers fun <laughs> that has that has yeah. ever done it for any amount of time like ellie would find it fun yeah. for a day because she never gets to do anything like that but that's about as as much as it takes before your brain goes oh okay this is highly repetitive low uh low thought labor um, yeah. the, the only person that finds it fun is Dan Bach because he gets to pay somebody else to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are like there are people that have um, that are very good at repetitive tasks that are very zen about all that that can could chill in front of Netflix infinitely and sort bulk and just <laughs> kind of zone out. That just doesn't happen to be my brain type. So um, you know that, that's going to shape how I choose to interact with this. Certainly. Sh- pushes me away from uh, buying collections. Like, I like to brag about the collection I bought in 2015, but it's not like I've got a, gone out of my way to buy another big one since. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are are easy way to soak up a ton of time doing all that type of stuff. And I also kind of moved away from them. I mean, they dried up in my area a little bit too, which was part of it, but I was a lot less eager to pick them up, you know, towards the end of that than I was prior, just because I knew what I was getting myself into. I'm like, you know, when I was in grad school or whatever, unemployed, this was great. Now that I have a job, it's like, eh, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to buy your stuff at, or I'd offer much lower percentages yeah. so that like, it was really worth it because other than that, oh, I'm not bothering. So the only final point I'll make about uh, buy listing to safety or retreating to safety in, the, in terms of picking up blue chips is that doesn't necessarily include power nine or even revised duels. That stuff tends to be is kind of like the perennial buy list target that people get really excited to buy list into. But because that's the case, those are some of the most desirable cards in the history of Magic. Most retailers will have, most major retailers will have the, uh, a fairly significant premium posted on that stuff. And especially if you're buy listing to some of the best buy lists like Card Kingdom or um, Abu and then, you know, tier two, most of the rest of the major vendors, um, you're going to find that if you want to get into a Mox or a Black Lotus, even at low condition, you're getting really, really hammered. Like it's, they're draining against the retail value um, that you could have got for the cards that you sent in. So you've got to be fairly diligent about picking the right stuff. A couple, about $6,000 worth of buy list I sent in last month, I managed to exit into things that were within 10% of like TCG near, mar- near mint market low um, via CK and then via ABU where I would normally assess their credit between like 0.55 and 0.7 of street value. I mean, I should get out closer to 0.8 to 0.85, which is just, those are the kind of results that you want, because then you're really getting mileage out of your buy listing activity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's some good stuff right there. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't hate the power as a, as a sink simply because it's brainless. Like, I don't have to do a lot of work. To know that, like, a, uh, you know, a 9.5 or whatever unlimited Mox Jet is totally fine as a, as a card to move all my buyless funds into, even if I'm, I, I am paying a premium for it. Like, for the most part, yes, you will. But it's, uh, and, you know, stuff like Guy's Cradles is great. Um, but some of the other stuff, I, I don't know. I don't think they're bad. I just think that, like, you know that you're really safe on the power and you don't have to figure it out, I think, is an appeal. But I don't fault people for looking to other places. You kind of have to do your homework on it all too to see. You know, sometimes there might a store might be closer on one piece of power to real pricing than others, and so forth. Sure. All right. So what about what else do we have on the agenda here for uh, episode two hundred? Oh yeah, this is uh, <laughs> that was <clears throat> one of our longer intros again. Uh, all right, so we're starting off this week. Segment one: our top movers, the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Uh, segment two are cards to watch cards james and i and a couple of discord members think have a bright future segment three are metagame week in review there is a couple pioneer preliminaries we might take a look at um, there was one posted today but other than that kind of quiet on the metagame uh, side of things and topic segment four or topic of the week this is the the time sink here this week we have uh, compiled a list of some of our favorite hits and misses of our own picks over the last year. Um, and when we're, you know, we'll kind of talk about 
MTG Finance within the scope of 2019 and, you know, what we're looking at moving forward into 2020 and some real broad stroke stuff. I know we don't we don't spend a lot of time just talking about broad strokes and pontificating on this cast. So I'm sure you're all looking forward to getting to listen <laughs> to that for for an hour. Uh, but let's start off here. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week. More if on the boundless. Uh out of Modern Horizons, 650 to 750, about a 15% gain. Um, I know you added this after the fact. So do you want to highlight why we're – tell our listeners why we're highlighting it's this? It's only up 15%, which wouldn't normally make our list. But I wanted to flag it because uh, a few weeks back on Brainstorm Brewery, uh, DJ um, made it one of his picks. Um, and then I told people on our Discord that he was probably early. Um, I didn't, but if you keep seeing these five, 10, 15% movements and they stack up over the course of three or four months, then you could end up with 40, 50, 60% movement, which would be completely legitimate. And the buy list will creep up as well. This is a mythic ultimately from a set that was heavily open for a while, but, um, you have to assume that the opening funnel, you know, the process of opening modern horizons has slammed shut months earlier than might otherwise have been the case without Pioneer, which means that the overall amount of Modern Horizons product cracked and floating around the market is less than it might otherwise have been. So some of the best stuff in Modern Horizons is going to move, and in fact, there are a couple of such cards on the list already this week. Um, So I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that, um, for instance, our group buy on Modern Horizons singles in the summer had access to Morophons under $4. So you can already buy list those reasonably profitably, um, even if you just want to get off the train right now. Hmm. Okay. Um, I respect that. And I'm, I often find myself wondering about these, you know, 15%, 20% gains, because I mean, I don't really notice them. I don't, I don't review with a fine tooth comb every five and 10, 15% gain every single day. So they're likely to escape my notice. And if it just does that every three weeks, the card goes up 15%, it's easy to never notice the price increased. Um, and I kind of wonder sometimes as I cast a gaze over my spec box, how many of those have sort of incrementally climbed that I just, you know, never got around to listing. Um, but, you know, like, okay, well, I know that maybe there's four cards in there that, like, are worth twice as much as I paid for them, but I never noticed they went up in price, so they just sit there unlisted, and I should go through and check every card, blah, 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 which is part of the reason why I list cards for way higher on TCG Player. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a, a joke with some of our listeners and people in the Discord that, like, I'm usually, like, the highest price card on the site or, like, you know, the last person standing, but that's sort of a memory mechanism, because I get the card, you know, I bought this card for $4 and I'm like, well, I don't want to have to babysit this. So I'm just going to stick it up for nine. And then when it's, when eventually the price gets there and it sells, I go back, I find the copy that sold and I dig out the rest of them. And now I reassess the market. So it's just kind of a way of putting the burden of memory outside of my own sure. head. Because um, these are just so easy to miss week after week after week. Yeah, there's not, because of the way the industry responds mostly to TCG and uh, Magic Card Market stats that are daily uh, or weekly, it's not easy. You you have to be running your own analytics um, along, uh, you know, stats that most players wouldn't have access to. 
Um, there are a few of our Discord members and a few people in the community that kind of go out of their way to build up better analytics around these kinds of things. But ultimately, there are so many other opportunities that you don't necessarily need to be tracking the like 5% here, 5% there cards, but they'll creep up on you. Um, Morifon mm-hmm. in particular is buy list backed at 450 US cash, 585 credit. Um, so pretty solid. Uh, oh yeah, 585 credits real close. Uh, moving right along, Ice Fang Kowaddle, another Modern Horizons card on the move. Foils going from 28 to 40, and I can tell you that that price is real because I've sold multiple of them already this week, uh, as well as playsets of non-foils in and around $25 a playset, uh, both of which are very profitable inside a six-month horizon. So Modern Horizons, still a great set, um, and Modern's not dead, it's just dying, and it's going to be a slow-ish death, so... I, I would guess that the Modern Horizons spec profile has been pushed out a full year for a lot of cards, and some of the modern-specific ones that aren't important in EDH are just going to have a real tough time. But not super surprised to see Coatle foils basically just drained out of the market. There are hardly any left on TCG Player Um and I would expect that they could post up in the $50 to $60 range. I attribute some of this to its playability in Legacy alongside Modern as well, um, that it does have multi-format demand overall. I think that's fair, as well as possibly cube demand, um, if anyone put some sort of snow or otherwise theme into their cube. It you know, fits well alongside... Uh... Oh, shoot. <laughs> The other owl. Ty, uh, <laughs> the owl that... Baleful Strix? Baleful Strix, thank you. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> but oh, uh, So there might be some additional demand there. And I agree with you regarding Modern Horizon spec profile being a longer timeline now. And, you know, looking at probably a longer time before we get paid on that, on any of those cards, simply because of Pioneer kind of putting the axe in that relatively quickly. Uh so some of this stuff will still end up being profitable. It's just going to take longer. I, I do think some cards are just not really going to get there in any meaningful capacity in any meaningful period of time. Um, from you know from where we thought they might be, cards that look like they might have become staples in modern, but are now going to languish and die on the vine, um, and just not really see any play anywhere. So you know, Ice Van Quaddle is probably flexible enough and interesting enough that it will make it outside of that whereas some cards just aren't yeah uh next on the list we've got breeding pool this is interesting the foils out of great crash which was the second printing of breeding pool going from 29 to 48 so roughly 50 for about a 65 percent or so gain um you know not that often that you see the a, a foil version of a card that was not the original pack foil draining this hard or showing this this kind of gain but if one of the reasons is that dissension was the original printing that was ages ago and there's only one listing at 280 plus dollars on tcg so now that the uh shock lands are essentially the fetch lands of pioneer um at least for the time being and probably for the foreseeable future no matter what they give us in terms of land cycles, they're probably still going to be core um, to the, the format. So you're seeing these foils for cards people know they're going to play, and not just in Pioneer, but of course still in Modern and in EDH. 
um, uh, and cubes and so forth, casual play even. You get a lot of play if you if you pick up these foils, especially at thirty bucks. I think those were those were a steal. And now you got to start thinking about you know are we going to see the most re- recent round of foils from last year in the return to return to Ravnica start to creep up because all the other versions are basically sold out. There are expeditions, but of course the expeditions are very pricey, um, and we're not going to see reprints for. For probably a significant period of time, given that they they're still in standard right now, so I would think those are going to be specs pretty shortly here. They could be. I'd, I'd have to go back and do dig into the inventory and the pricing data to get a to get an opinion on that. Um, you know, once you start to get, you know, if you have like the Dissension and the Gate Crash and the Guilds of Ravnica printing, you know, it really starts to. To settle a little, that, that inventory tends to settle a little bit. Oh, plus the the expeditions. Like there's so many, you know, you get that kind of a suppression effect across the board. But there, it's very possible that several of them might be well positioned. I would just, have, like I said, I have to go and dig into the numbers to make sense of it. Um, but that's you know, fifty bucks for a foil gate crash breeding pool. Phew, that's a that's a lot of dollars. I mean, these were I want to say twenty to thirty for a long time. Um, just kind of hanging out there. Uh, because they weren't they weren't the original printing, but you know, arguably they were probably better than the original printing. But there was more of them, and it was just sort of like a, you know, I remember on my trading days, I would always take foil shocks if there was nothing else to go to because they were very stable, and I wasn't really worried about them. Uh, and I, I don't know. I wonder if you know it's time to go back and review not just the new versions, but the old versions. You know, the the Gate Crash Ravnica block ones too. Um. And see what else is hanging out there. Probably worth somebody's time to go dig through all that. I'm going to add a, a, a pick here to my spec list based on this part of the conversation. Okay, go, go I'll ahead, allow it. Go ahead and cover just because it's episode 200. Yeah, go ahead and cover the next the next couple while I do that. Uh, well, these are going to be quick. Uh, Miss Cutter Hydra foils out of Theros, 250 to 450. I don't know why this went up. Jace Wielder of Mysteries. <laughs> yeah, like, no, but Miss Cutter Hydra out of Theros, the foils. Uh, I'm not seeing, I, I didn't see any of these in Pioneer. I, I might have missed them in the sideboards or something like that. And I know that green is still having its moment, um, still doing pretty well. They're kind of more of a ramp strategy now, which could cast Miscutter Hydras, but I'm not seeing any in this Pioneer preliminary that we're looking at. Um, so well, I know people, I don't really people were definitely using it. them to go after Oko. Um, and it also go, hits, we talked about this a few weeks back, I think, when we first saw it uh, make a move, uh, that it can hit both of the Teferis because they're blue. It hits Narset, it hits Ashiok, um, it hits. Uh, any of the blue-red planeswalkers that might come into prominence, the Royal Scions, etc. So it can potentially do a lot of work in a, in a meta full of blue planeswalkers. Yes, and that makes sense. Uh, I just hadn't, like, all of that, I believe, I just hadn't seen any of that come to fruition. Um, and I wonder if this is lag from, oh, you know, like, the price was on the way up, Oko got banned, Miss Cutter Hydra prices kind of overshot Oko. Uh, but we'll see, I suppose. I mean, like, Teferi Time Raveler is still a very relevant card. Uh, and so is Narset. And possibly so is Scarab God. 
so this seems like it might still have some legs on it. Uh, Jace Wielder Mysteries out of Secret Lair foils 30 to 55. Now, I, I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be the stained glass version. But right? Secret Lair version, which is the only... the only Okay. It's also the stained glass version. Yeah, just verifying here. Um, mm-hmm. So those were, like we said, 30 to 55 on foil, so almost a double up. And it sounds like somebody had a plan for these, because you were telling me before the cast that... You went to try and buy some of these just yesterday or yesterday or today, and uh, you couldn't find any. Yeah, I started looking at these like a week, week and a half ago, and they were pretty plentiful on eBay and TCG for a while at around the 35 range. And I was kind of hoping to get them closer to 28 to 30, looking to get them to 50 at some point. So I didn't really pull the trigger. Um, but somebody must have decided that snapping off 50 or 100 copies was a good idea. Um, and I think I back that play because it's actually a fairly important card in EDH. The stained glass version is gorgeous and it's in English, which certainly broadens the overall audience. And unlike some of the other Planeswalkers that appeared in the Secret Layer bundle packs, um, Jace only shows up in the Dredge-focused one, the one that had Life from the Loam. And it's possible that that set didn't sell that well. Keep in mind, going back to our theories around how they handled all of that, it could be true that Wizards printed something like 10,000 copies up front, they were ready to ship right away, and then if uh, a a specific set sold beyond that, they went back back to the presses, and those um, follow-on sales shipped later. That's why some people had got their cards within a week, and others were waiting weeks. So it's not clear to me whether that set is still in in motion in the mail system and we might see additional Jaces show up shortly. Or if the set didn't sell that well and they didn't have to go back to the presses for it, then all that was going to be out there might already be out there, in which case it could very easily hold this plateau. Um, and again, there's just no point of resupply unless Wizards pulls a fast one and releases them again somewhere in the future which they didn't make any promises about, so they do have a loophole there. The secret layer products are supposed to be exclusive to the secret layer releases, the cards that were in each of the seven sets, but the stained glass planeswalkers were a wild card they threw in more or less without making any promises around them. So they, in theory, could be resold you know, at San Diego Comic-Con or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't by default assume that we're going to see a bunch more of them anytime soon but like you said i have nothing to go on that we won't so i wouldn't bank too hard on those never showing up again because we certainly could get them and it wouldn't be outside of wizards behavior patterns to print something like this that's cool um and then have it be you know the cool version for whatever six months or a year and then come back with a more common version type of thing like okay you know we'll give you this promo for a year and you can enjoy it but then we're going to print the promo again you know after it's had its time to be unique uh i I also and when we were talking about this before i suspect that the dredge secret layer would probably be one of the worst selling ones because I don't know who really wants it. There's so many Life from the Loam copies out there. The only, like, you would only buy this if you wanted a, and I mean, like, uh, what's the other, the, what's the other two cards are not really hard to find or that expensive. 
um, the price was pretty much all on the life from the loam. If you were talking about like, oh, could I go buy these singles elsewhere for cheaper type of thing? Um, so it has to be somebody who cares enough and runs these cards. They want the cohesive artwork. But like, I mean, none of these cards are legal in Pioneer. Anyone paying attention knows that Modern is doesn't have, you know, a really strong outlook here. Um, I, I, I just don't know who's buying that thing. So given all of that, uh, if this if this is the only product where Jace Wielder Mysteries is coming from, they might not have even sold their initial print allocation worth of it. And, you know, they might have some of those secret layers floating around. They didn't even get through it all. So which would mean that there could be very few copies of this Jace out in the wild. Yeah, exactly. And keep in mind, we called uh, or the a user called uh, Jace Wielder Mysteries the war Japanese foils at 40 to go to 60 last week. And we uh, greenlit that on the back of... The stained glass walkers looking like they were poised to take off, and here we are a couple weeks later, and indeed they did. So between bo- both of those copies are likely to hold their plateaus reasonably well because neither of them has any strong method of resupply at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, following that, strategic planning foils out of Hour of Devastation, $1.50 to 3 I realized when I started talking about this, I should have let you take this one because there's another one that I'm not really clear on. Um, I see one deck playing this in the preliminary. Um, it was a Arclight Phoenix build. This guy went 3-2. Uh, it's something like a a telling time-ish, impulse-ish type card. So I assume it's an Arclight Phoenix card for the most part? No, it's the 27th most played card in the format, according to MGGO stats right now. Um, Being played in both uh, some blue-white decks, but mostly a Phoenix card. You're right. Where where did this come from? 27th most played, huh? I don't remember it being that popular before. There's been a, there's hmm. been quite a shakeup in the top fifty cards given the recent bannings. Um, Phoenix just a, being a better deck now um, than it was say three weeks ago means that Phoenix cards are on the rise, as are a bunch of blue white cards, as we're going to see in the tail end of this list. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense that that's where it would be. I just I hadn't noticed it before when I was keeping track of all this. But um, all right. What's uh, what follows then? Uh, we've got Approach of the Second Sun, which is also showing up in, uh, I think, a specific uh, ramp deck in Pioneer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I remember there being something cute where you get to... Yeah, in blue-white decks, but of a specific configuration. I don't think it's the Planeswalker build, right? Well, the one, the most recent 5-0 from like December 16th runs four Narset Parter Avails, four Teferi Time Raveler, and one Big Teferi, 21 blue-white control spells, and two Search for Azkanta. I yeah, thought so I saw BDMs. It's like, like, like a one of in this deck, um, though I think I've seen some versions that run a couple more copies. I thought I saw BDM say something about playing this with Wheel of Fortune. Or wheel of fate, I should say. Like you, you cast this, and then you try and wheel of fate it back to your hand. I don't know. I didn't really catch the meaning of it. Hmm. Well, no, there, there, there was basically. I, I can't remember if it was wheel of fate or not, but it's basically that you can, when you cast approach, the next time you cast it, you win the game. But it goes down seven cards. But if you cast a draw seven, then it comes into your hand immediately. You cast it again the next turn and win. Right, right. I got that. 
Yeah, so. I'm poking through something. The, the search results finally just pulled up for this, and I see it mostly in blue-white control builds. This one's running it with, like, the dig through time. So, yeah, I guess that's the plan, is that you cast this and then turbo your way to drawing it the second time. But right. I don't see... I, it's not like I see a special combo. It's just you're playing more draw spells to get you there the second time. Yeah. Gather the pack foils and Magic Origins going from 2 to 450. Not the kind of thing that's going to make you a huge amount of money, though you might want to keep your eye on buy list. This is uh, out of the uh, pseudo dredge deck that shows up in Pioneer that likes to fill the graveyard and then and then try to do some busted things. Um, and then finally on the list, we've got Azorius Charm foils from Return to Ravnica going from 4 to 18. Blue-white uh, doing a lot of work in Pioneer these days, so a lot of the key cards that are from the older sets, Return to Ravnica is the first set in Pioneer. Uh, is that correct? No. Yes. Yeah, right? Yes. That's where it started. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think it, it it must have a reprint somewhere, though, right? Well, there's a bunch of copies of Azorius Charm that have been printed, but if you want foil copies, your list is shorter. You've got Return the Ravnica. It was in IMA as an uncommon. There you go. Um, but that's looks like that's about the only other foil we're talking about. Yeah, so original pack foils are going to be preferable to the wonky IMA foils, so I'm not terribly surprised given uh, the OG status, etc. So that's that's yeah. our pop movers for the week. Not not uh, a super huge list. People relatively quiet during this holiday season. That's pretty standard for MTG Finance. Um, we can move right along to segment two, our cards to watch, and I'll jump in with my first pick. Uh, Wilderness Reclamation is back on my radar. Foils give them, say, a 6 to 12 month horizon. Confidence level, say, maybe an 8.5 out of 10. Um, $12 buy-in on foils currently. Relatively steep ramp up into the $20 range. I'd be looking for like a 50 to 75% uh, gross exit on these. And then, you know, net fees, etc. Um, probably there will be a Saltai Spells type deck that will show up uh, and get there in Pioneer at some point. Saltai Spells was Sam Black brew in Modern, and if the deck can exist in Modern, it can probably exist in Pioneer once it has the right meta and puzzle pieces. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's also a pretty prominent EDH card. Um, you know, you have something like a Leyline of Anticipation in play, plus Wilderness Reclamation, then all your spells can be cast at instant speed, and you untap your lands at the end of your turn. That's going to be a pretty sweet situation. It's already reported in like 5,000 decks on EDH Rec, so between a future and Pioneer, uh, Modern, and EDH, uh, I feel pretty good about these foils, and I don't think we're going to see them reprinted anytime soon either. Well, the good the good news is I am right there with you. Uh, four weeks ago, episode 196, I picked this as well. Um my numbers were 9 and 20, and you've got it at 12 and 20. So it's actually crept up, looks like about three yep. bucks since I talked about it a month ago. Uh, so I'm pretty much on par, on the same page as you here. Now, the, the, the big difference is that when I talked about it a month ago, I specifically cited, uh, Nexus of Fate Nexus decks. Nexus of Fate, yeah. Yeah, which is, um, was banned along with Oko. It was the, oh yeah, that was the other card that was banned with Oko, <laughs> uh, ban, which, which definitely hurts the card a little bit. Although I'm, I do think that the card is good enough 
to manage even without Nexus of Fate. It's just going to take a little bit of time for somebody to figure out where it is. Uh, even if it's not part of a, a infinite loop combo, it could still just end up being a deck that seeks to overpower you with by leveraging its mana in a, in a way that we haven't really seen before, which is interesting because ramp decks tended to play. I find that the design of Wilderness Reclamation interesting because ramp decks, you know, fundamentally have this problem of your deck is comes in two halves. It comes from ramp and it comes from payoff. And if you draw the wrong half at the wrong time, you're dead. Wilderness Reclamation is sort of like a four mana ramp spell that just like doubles your mana, but it can be undone. Like it's kind of weird because you can just play a normal game of magic and then suddenly double your mana with Wilderness Reclamation. And now you're overpowering your opponent, but you only have to play those four cards. Your deck runs without it, but then sometimes you do have it and it's really good. And it, it kind of it occupies this way of like, how do I play a, how do I leverage my mana harder than my opponent without having to play a traditional ramp deck and wizards designed this. And they also gave us uh fires of invention, which I think is essentially the similar concept. Um, you'd get to double up on your mana, but it doesn't require that you play like 12 ramp spells and 12 payoff cards type of thing. It, it's an interesting design decision. R- regardless, I think with those reclamation will find a home, even if Nexus of Fate is gone, I'm just not exactly sure what it's going to be or what it's going to look like. And I think a lot of other people don't know that either, but it's a powerful card. It does cool things. Um, and I think that just on the EDH demanded alone, you're probably going to get to $20 so long as you don't get hit by a reprint and Pioneer gives you a great venue, great avenue for possible demand boost. Yeah, I mean, one of the, there's a couple of things here that got me to lean in. A, Nexus of Fate being banned pushed the price up a few dollars as opposed to cutting it down a few dollars. So that says the market is definitely not, was not leaning too heavily on the Nexus of Fate decks for their valuation of the card. The other part of it is that anything, this is from, you know, it's still legal and standard, uh, but nobody is opening standard right now. Like um, the Ravnica sets from last year are basically at the very tail end of their opening period. Nobody's popping those boosters. So even though this is only an uncommon, there's no easy point of resupply for the market, and it's probably going to see a few years before it ever catches a reprint. So whether this is a three-month play or a year-and-a-half play, I can't tell you for certain, but I suspect it'll be sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, that tends to be the way these go. Uh, For... The six listeners that are going to understand this, uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this before, but I bet somebody uh, that in Path of Exile 4.0, they had to give me the first exalt that dropped if uh, if Wilderness Reclamation was not banned in standard. And if it was banned in standard, I have to give them my first exalt of patch 4.0. So I'm going to win that bet. I'm going to be rich. Uh, <laughs> so my first pick this week is Goblin Rabble Master. Uh, the BioBox promo specifically, I'm shooting for like three to six months here. You can grab those at about 350 right now. Um, it's the eighth most played creature in Pioneer. Um, and there's a lot of red in the format in general right now. Uh, looks like it's not the ultra aggressive versions that like we've seen. There, there, there are the like basically just a burn decks, but it looks like they're playing a little bit more into the creature sphere. I think that probably has to do with the fact that the spell suite for burn is lacking a little bit relative to what you might have seen in modern where you had so many cards of that nature. 
Um, and it's basically any deck that plays red that wants to attack is definitely going to be considering Goblin Rebel Master. If you were playing standard back when this was around, you'll remember this skyrocketed from like two to twenty dollars because it was so good. And uh, they tried to remake it here with Legion Goblin Legion Boss or something like that, which has also seen play alongside Rebel Master. But I think Rebel Master is going to be a four of in almost all situations before you're playing the other one. Uh, so I like the buy box promos at about 350. The supply looks good. I think you can probably get out around eight or nine dollars on these, uh, you know, in, in the next six months or so as these types of deck as, as with Oko gone, the format stabilizing, people are going to be kind of picking these up. Um, and we'll, we'll, you know, we can, we can get some good traction there. I do want to highlight, do not buy non-foils of this card because it was in that like dual deck printing, like elves versus goblins, I think. Uh, or something like that. And there, I caught one vendor had 270 copies listed of the non-foils from that set. Just one vendor had 270 copies. So don't buy the non-foils. Only look at like the buy boxes and maybe the back foils. Yeah, this is impressive that Rabble Master is sitting in the top 25 cards in the format all of a sudden. I'm pretty sure I have some of these in my box of shame from whatever this second or third last reason to buy goblins was um definitely gonna need to go dig those out and test the market a little bit yeah uh, um, i don't know if i have any but hmm said a very solid pick given the current no. circumstances yeah thank you uh, uh all here, right what do you got next for my us? next pick here my next pick here is another retread this one's a retread of my own um, I made this call like six months ago, and it hasn't gone anywhere. And it's a card you at least need to be thinking about in the next few weeks. I don't think you need to rush out and buy 50 copies and, and try to corner the market. This is the kind of thing where you just want to keep your eye on it and see if cards are presented from Theros Beyond Death that make it likely that Commander players will be reaching for this. So some some kind of enchantments matters commander I would expect to get in Theros Beyond Death, and if they have white in their casting cost and some kind of, uh, say they trigger off enchantments coming into play or something, um, then Hall of Heliod's generosity foils are basically right where we last looked at them. They're about twelve or thirteen dollars. It's a rare out of Modern Horizons supply is medium-ish um and no one's going to be buying four at a time so again not something i'm going to be rushing out to pull the trigger on a whole bunch more copies than i already own because i think i have maybe 20 of the foils that i got in europe around eight to ten dollars or something in the summer but certainly one of the better enchantments matters cards of the last couple of years worth keeping an eye on as we head into this uh preview season for sure We've already seen Nykthos go pretty wild based most at the time. You you could look at the timing of Nykthos price movement with Theros announcements and it jumped pretty well, even though like we knew it was Theros, like we knew devotion was probably going to be a thing. It, it wasn't specific to like Oko or, or um, Green Devotion and Pioneer at the moment. It was like some piece of information occurred based on Theros that we basically already knew Nykthos got a lot more expensive. I think Hall of Helios Generosity is probably roughly in the same place where like it seems really obvious, but something is going to get, some piece of information is going to get not even necessarily spoiled, but 
kind of reach the broad consciousness and Hall of Elliot generosity is going to go up and you're going to be like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I would be shocked if they don't give us an enchantment matters, commanders, po- possibly even one or two. And given that Theros is coming out in 2020 and 2020 is a year of commander. Basically in two weeks. Uh, yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah. God, it's so soon. Um, it's spoilers start two weeks, right? But like you're no, releasing no, no. Theros. Spoilers started in the holiday season. We've already seen multiple Theros spoilers this week. Well, they're they're like official, like their actual like five day a week spoiler thing usually starts the week. Is it the week after New Year's? Like they release one or two through the holidays, but then like the the spoilers every single day is like two weeks before the release, I, I, right? I'm pretty sure pre release is a week from Saturday. Huh. Well, in any case, you've got Theros coming out very very shortly because uh, it's 2020 very shortly, and. Not only are they likely to have put Enchantment Matters commanders in Theros, you also have all of the commander product released that's being released this coming year that is in the same year as Theros. So they might toss some Enchantment Matters commanders elsewhere throughout the year. Sure. There are like 75 new legends in the, the master set later this year, later in 2020. None of, you're telling me none of those are going to be enchantment matters. Yep. So even if you don't get paid in Theros, the odds that you make it to the end of 2020 without any of them is like nothing. Yep, that sounds about right to me. So I mean, if if you got if I got you in six months too early, apologies. Probably you're holding here. If you don't see anything exciting come out of Theros, then you can think about just getting out of those and getting into something else with more acceleration. But I think you owe it to yourself to give it a couple weeks here and see see what's what, um, because you know. The cost basis on Modern Horizons still contributes to the potential for foil rares to take off pretty hard if demand is is present. So we'll let's see what we get. There's also 4,700 or so decks reported on EDH Rec using this card already in six months. That's a good number. Um, that means that yeah. the EDH demand is already there. And if Theros Beyond Death gives us more reasons, or as you said, Commander Legends gives us more reasons, or a combination of both, we'll get there eventually. Yep. I don't. Uh, I don't dislike it whatsoever. I'll probably go see if I can score any with my store credit. Um, my second pick for the week is Nissa's Pilgrimage. I'm looking uh, this time at FNM promos. Nissa's Pilgrimage is the 26th most played spell in Pioneer. I'm both my picks this week are about Pioneer. Um, I you know the EDH list. It, EDH lists, if you've been watching for like the last like month and a half, basically since Throne of Aldrain was released, have not budged. Like it's been the same top commanders over and over and over again. Basically, there's no new commanders to spur excitement. So it's kind of flatlined. Also, if you look at the the number of decks getting built on a weekly basis, it has gone down. Um, so in fact, let me pull this up really quick. So in the past week, Corvold is the most built deck at 98 decks. And like in early November, the most built was like 270. So the amount of just new lists being submitted to EDH rec is way down. People aren't building a lot of EDH decks relatively right now, or at least there's not a lot of excitement around it. So these like cards will still move for sure, but it's just been really hard to find new and attractive targets like because information hasn't just isn't updating now that's going to change a lot as soon as theros hits shelves but that's kind of why i'm looking at pioneer more this week um it's just this is a quiet time of year for edh in between set and ancillary products which is interesting i guess as my own little diversion here and sort of a a sneak peek at segment four here is that 
in the past, you only got new commanders basically every set, like every three months. And sometimes ancillary product would have new commanders, but a lot of ancillary product was reprints anyways. So you weren't getting other places for new commanders. Um, and basically the format just moved way, way slower. And Wizards has seen fit to dramatically increase the pace at which new legends are released. And I mean, now the gap between Thero, between Throne of Eldraine and Theros is like the longest period of time of the, of, you know, of a 365 day year that there isn't a new uh, commander released. Um, and we feel it. Like I feel how slow it is all of a sudden. Uh, and I mean, in 2020, it's going to be bananas how fast these go. Frankly, I'm kind of surprised that they don't have. I, and now that I say all this, I'm kind of wondering why they didn't do like a, a weekly release. Like it would have been interesting to see them do like, okay, we're going to give you 52 new commanders in 2020 and we're going to release a new one every week type of thing. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Like, okay, every single Tuesday this year, tune in to see what the new commander is. We're shipping a brick of them to your local store where you can like sign up at a given month to get like the, the you know, 20 bucks a month gets you one copy of each commander release this month type of thing and get people excited every single week. Huh. They should hire me for this. Okay, so that was a lot of conversation, but nothing to do with what I was talking about. The card that I picked <laughs> is Nissa's Pilgrimage. The F and M promos are currently about fifty cents, um, and and I'm going to be I'm going to level with you. The supply on both the F and M promos and the pack foils is reasonably high. It's not like two hundred and sixty copies from one vendor, but like it's higher, uh, you know, high-ish, but. It's pretty highly played in Pioneer, 26 most played spell, I think. Um, it's in 70, it's in 7,000 EDH rec decks, which is a, a pretty healthy number. I think, I think, you know, five, five and 6,000 and below is kind of, you know, people play it, but it's not hugely popular. Over 10,000 is like, yeah, this is a good place to be. So 7,000 is moderate. Um, I don't expect a foil reprint on this anytime soon. Um, so, and the, the FNM promo is definitely cooler than the pack foil. It's all over in all the green decks in Pioneer, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. Um, it does a lot of work as a ramp spell in that format, and I don't know how quick Wizards is going to be to put additional ramp spells in. I think ramp spells and uh, and cantrips are probably going to be they're going to be a little slower to make really good versions of. Um, mostly I'm looking at a buy list exit here. So you're buying in at maybe 50 cents on these. And, you know, if you can buy list these at a dollar store credit in three to six months, I'd be happy to take that. The nice thing here is that you're not going to get a huge return, but this is one of those cards you can buy a brick of, right? You can buy 40 F&M promos or something or 20 F&M promos and just kind of stash them all. And then when the buy lists have caught up, you ship them off, you make your extra money and then you're happy. You don't worry about trying to sell ones and twos up unless it really goes nuts, in which case, great. But um, it just seems like the type of card that, you know, is going to just quietly sit there being played a lot in Pioneer. The F&M promos will drain. It'll go up a couple dollars. And if you had had a bunch of them, it's going to give you a nice, easy buy list exit. The nice thing here is that the credit backing at CK, at Card Kingdom, is essentially what the near-mint market low is on TCG right now, for both versions. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. as long as this stays a key ramp spell for 12 to 18 months, then the buy list probably doubles. And if, if I could get my hands on a tight brick, single seller for at or below what CK is currently offering... 
then I might pick up 20 copies and just throw it into a buy list a year down the road. Um, I definitely don't want to be trying to pick these off onesie twosie because sometimes I see pro traders like buy four copies of 50 cents back and then spend weeks like debating the finer points of the spec. <laughs> it's like your time matters. You you can't spend four hours thinking about the $2 you spent. That's just not how you get there. So, uh, I will tell you that part of my uh, decision here is based on having looked through all of my picks of the year. And I definitely saw a theme with the ones that kind of connected the best. So, and this is kind of part of that theme. So we'll, we'll talk about more of it when we get there, but you'll see why I gravitated towards this uh, this week in particular. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the, the pick I added ad hoc as we were talking about breeding pool, uh, gate crash foils moving is steam vents from the most re- recent printing, talking about the foils out of Guilds of Ravnica, currently in and around $20. The art is clearly better than the much maligned art from the second printing, and I suspect that may uh, result in these taking off to 40 within the year. Okay. I mean, I I, I, I didn't look at the numbers, but I, I trust you that you did, and that sounds great. You know, I do remember the Steam events on the... Oh, uh, actually, what is the art one on this one? Let me take a look at that, because I can remember the other one. The new one is oh, the big lightning cool tower. tower. Yeah, the Guild Pact one was awful, and the Return of the Ravnica one was off, pretty mediocre, too. So this is definitely the best-looking one. I don't consider it to be striking, but it's the best of the three. Yeah. Uh, so I can get behind this, um, you know, and especially now that Pioneer is about to slow, I shouldn't say slow down, the Pioneer bandless updates are about to slow down. Oh, that uh, inventory is pretty low, too, and it ramps to 24, 25 after just a couple play sets. Exactly. Um, the, now that the bandless updating is going to slow down considerably, I think people that were not getting involved yet are going to start getting involved in Pioneer. Um, because I happen to know players in real life who are like, yeah, I, I, I would play pioneer, but there, it's not really happening around here at the moment. And I don't like, like I bought one deck and before I even had a chance to play it, it got banned. So I stopped and I'm just waiting for it to catch up and then I will start playing. And I think that that's probably going on with a lot of players. Um, and once now that once Pioneer hits that, like, OK, this is a quote unquote stable format. We're not going to be changing every week. People, there's going to be a lot of people who are like interested, but not diehards who will now choose the moment to get in. Now, it's not like they're all going to decide, well, I'm playing Pioneer time to go buy 40 foil shocks. That's not going to happen. But of course, having players come to the format and take it seriously will increase the amount of action we see on these types of cards. Yep. All right, so we can move along here. We're going to do, in honor of it being our end-of-year episode and our 200th episode, we're going to do two uh, Pro Trader member Discord picks. Um, both are black foils with an EDH bent. The first is from Evil Garbage, a uh, fantastic MTG Finance handle if I've ever heard one. Torment of Hailfire foils on a 3-6 to six month horizon out of uh, Hour of Devastation, Confidence level of 9 to go from 12 to 20. It's in 14,000 EDH rec decks. I know both of us have picked it at some point in the past. Um, The nice thing about this one is Torment picked up a reprint in the Mystery Boosters, but of course that doesn't include a foil, which insulates the foils for at least a year, if not longer. Um, I would suspect that it will not see a reprint in Commander Legends, given that it's in the Mystery Boosters. So... 
these foils are looking pretty good. Yeah, uh, and like we talked about them before, and I'm on the same page. I think both picks are, are roughly equivalent this week. Uh, Torment Hellfire, really popular card, more than I expected at release. Um, and given the supply and the demand, it, it's a great looking card for sure. Um, I don't really have a lot to, to say on it other than that I like it. Second member pick along a similar line, Revel and Riches Foils on a 6 to 12 month horizon. That's at an Ixalan, of course. Uh, buy price, you can get them around 6 bucks right now. Exit target about 15 It's in 7,000 EDH rec decks. It did get reprinted in the promo pack, but didn't show up in the mystery boosters. Um, so it's got some LGS foil exposure with those little Planeswalker symbols on it, I think. Um, but outside of those, um, I think this is very similar overall profile. Whether it gets there in three months or 12 months, it'll get there. Okay. Um, so both of those gentlemen get a $25 gift certificate to Cool Stuff Inc., courtesy of our fabulous sponsor. Congratulations on those solid picks. Yeah. Good job, guys. You're uh, definitely a theme, but I like them both. both. Both surprisingly more popular than I would have expected, uh, but cool. Cool beans. Um, all right, segment three, our metagame week in review. We'll touch on this real quick. There's a couple, pe- you know, for these preliminaries, these pioneer preliminaries. And now I don't, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid to admit this on air, but I don't quite understand what these preliminaries are even supposed to be. I think they qualify like, you where for do they come pro from? tour qualifier tournaments. But they definitely weren't here like a month ago. Like, yeah, these I think preliminary events are new. I, 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 we're not, we should really go look it up, <laughs> but I'm assuming that you play one of these. If you win it, you qualify for a PTQ online, and then you have to win a PTQ to get a Pro Tour slot on the Players Tour, which is the new name of what used to be the Pro Tour, then the Magic Fest, now the Players Tour. Hmm. Uh, all I know is that I absolutely refuse to ever go look anything up. Uh, I will stand proudly in ignorance. Uh, that's my, my strategy here. Um, uh, overall, I'm really struck by just how much red we're seeing. Uh, Bone Crusher Giant all over the place. Uh, looks like five people are running him in this one preliminary alone, and they are all in the 4-1 or better bracket. Uh, so those Bone Crusher Giant decks doing a lot of work. I know you picked the showcase versions a couple weeks ago. I haven't yep. gone back to look at that, but I would imagine those are probably still real good picks. If they haven't already gone up. And Murderous Rider is in 15th slot in the format right now. Uh, Mono Black, not at all dead. Um, shows up in this this uh, prelim as a 4-1 list in two different configurations. One of them is a black-white Planeswalker mid-range list with three Murderous Rider that gets cute by playing a copy of Thalia's Lancer to go pick up Gideon Ally of Zendikar, Liliana the Last Hope, or Soren Vengeful Bloodlord, which is not the Soren you're thinking of. Um, and then there's a more straightforward black aggro version that's still running like Four Spawn of Mayhem, the Glint Sleeve Siphoners, and Bloodsoak Champions that has basically just ditched the Smuggler's Copters that allowed them to abuse the meta and uh, shifted over to, I guess, Spawn of Mayhem. Yeah, like I caught the, that floating around yeah. in there. And, then, and of course, they're running four Castle Lockthwain, and even the black-white Planeswalker version was running two Castle Lockthwain. So I'm still really liking that card in almost every version that's available uh, on a long-term timeline. It's just I, I think it's going to be an important card going a little further down the road. 
Uh, it's funny you mention all that stuff because I checked the showcase versions of Murderous Rider to see if I wanted to make those my pick for the week. And I don't feel like they're quite well positioned enough yet, but I did like, I am thinking about that card. And I also went and checked Lathwain. 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 Um And you had picked it recently enough that I felt like I wasn't adding anything to the conversation, but it is definitely still worth that, thinking about that bone crusher giant showcase foil pick was at five dollars on episode 198 currently lowest two weeks priced, ago yeah current lowest price copies about seven on tcg i think those are a buy anyway uh i called like five to go to 12 i think you could probably reasonably expect those to be 15 or 20 in the not too distant future uh, as a f- if they keep up with this modern play or with this pioneer traction, then for sure, like standard alone, they're quite good, but they're really getting it done in pioneer. And I think bone crusher giant and my pick of goblin rebel master are both going to do very well. If this doesn't change in the next like three weeks. One of the things that somebody pointed out was that this is a four, three that can block in red for three mana with upside. Mm-hmm. Which is probably the correct way to be thinking about it and not at all how people were thinking about it up front. Which is well, a bad, uh, not wild that, slash, but whatever it is. Yeah, that it was like an over-costed shock with a mediocre creature on the back end. But what we're seeing repeatedly with these adventure cards is that people underestimate the value of the flexibility and the, and the, the ability to get a two-for-one out of a decent segment of your deck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also the, uh, whatchamacallit, the type line trickery that you've got available to you as well which i don't think is relevant too much but it is out there it does matter like the the fact that you can cast it as an instant but it's a creature in your graveyard sure uh there was a tweet i wanted to draw attention to that i made a few days back uh december 22nd i i tweeted most played mythics in pioneer as per the latest mtgo results were teferi hero of dominaria Kalidas, Trader of Get, Brazen Borrower, Chandra, Torch of Defiance, and Questing Beast. I think since then the stats have updated a bit. Questing Beast is off the radar, not in the top 50 anymore, I believe, and has been replaced by Arclight Phoenix, one of my picks from six weeks ago or so. Um, worth keeping track of which mythics matter most in the format, that's for sure. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially as a kind of turnover. Um, you know, which ones keep showing up and doing well, right? Uh, right now, you know, so we saw Questing Beast fall out and Arclight go in type of thing. But, you know, if we keep seeing some movement, but Teferi is sitting there still being good, like that's clearly an important component of Pioneer. Um, which, by the way, I think he probably, although Hero of Dominaria, yeah, I do think the other Teferi is probably the most important one of the most important cards in pioneer but he's not a mythic so that's hardly relevant in any case um i I will say i'm most of these make sense to me but except for colitis that one is weird that is not the card i would expect to see here right well i mean it it's a value engine jund card so if it was good enough for jund and modern it's not that that surprising that it can make it in pioneer the question becomes, does the meta support the version of a black, a deck that includes black, wanting Kalidus, is seems meta-specific. So 
you need some kind of black X mid-range deck to be good. Um, but it's also seen play, I think, in the Vampires version, right? Alongside Soren, Imperious Bloodlord. Uh, you run two copies there because he happens to be a Vampire Warrior. Um, and everything else in that deck is a Vampire. So you've actually got two different versions of Black that are still in play for Pioneer, despite Smuggler's Copper being gone, um, that have potential reason to want Kalidus. And then you've got you know, Jund or Abzan type builds that could also put it to use. I, I like, I, it makes sense. Like, you know, if you, if you break it down, like clearly it's a top five mythic. So if you go looking and I'm not giving you a hard time, I'm just like, you know, kind of thinking about it. Sure. It's a clearly, it's a top fifth most played in the top five most played mythic. If you go and look at all the data, of course, it's going to be there to represent that it's a, a top five played mythic because it is, uh, it's a truism, but, it's still weird on the surface, like, oh, Kalidus? Really? Like, this is, like, if you had said, if you told somebody who hadn't really looked at the format in the last two weeks to pick the five most played Mythics, that's probably not on their list. They probably wouldn't even think about that card. They'd be like, what card? Oh, wait, the one from Oath of the Gatewatch? That's that set, right? Like, the people would just, like, would not even remember that this card existed. It just happens to kind of, like, it seems like fill roles that needed to be that people need it to fill um, in just a couple different places, I suppose. Well, in a lot of archetypes. There's actually nine different archetypes that have that have at least two 5-0 lists with Kalidus in the last month. And there's a total of mm. 40 5-0 lists that included the card. So that's how it gets into its slot in the top 50. Um, when you think about any of these decks, you don't really think of them as Kalidus decks, which is, I think, the angle you're coming from. Um, yeah. You know, it's just... they. You, as you said, a role player, but apparently a role player in many, many different archetypes at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because at the same time, you could like Hero of Dominaria, like, we're like, oh, yeah, that's like a major mythic. That's like drives blue white control decks. Like, that makes sense to me. Arc Light Phoenix, yeah, you're never putting less than four of those in a deck. Did really well in standard. Like, these are things, you know, that, that make sense to you. It's just Kalidus. It also, Kalidus didn't really see a lot of standard play either, right? Like, I don't remember him being a major component of standard. Not to say that he didn't see play, but he wasn't, like, a, a pillar of standard at the time. And I don't uh, remember... I don't know if I've ever seen a deck list that had four of them. I'd have to go back and check if he was ever a four of in standard. I want to say he was, but not consistently throughout his career in the format. Um, yeah. Certainly a card worth keeping your eye on in terms of how high foils might climb at some point though if if he is this broadly uh, spread across the format there are two four eight copies between 50 and 60 dollars on tcg player left for foils don't see any chance of them reprinting it this year it's not an important commander card it's not going to show up in any of these commander products it's not going to get reprinted into standard these foils could be 80 to 100 bucks. This could be like a Queen Marquesa type foil before it ever sees reprint. You know, I don't doubt whatsoever that the pioneer demand is there to make this, to, you know, put a lot of pressure on the foil. And I'm not questioning the resupply avenues either. I guess this might be an interesting study in can pioneer on its own, can, how high can that push a foil mythic? Right. Like, you know, this is, you know, Hero of Dominaria and those types of cards. Like, I don't need 
like it feels like there's an this and this kind of ties into the way I think about Kalidas is like I think of those cards as being good in plenty of places and being appealing to people and like if you told me that foil hero dominarias were like 90 bucks I wouldn't really bat an eye but Kalidas just seems like such a weird choice it's like okay how how much are people willing to spend on like a quote-unquote premier foil pioneer card we knew in modern it used to be 200 dollars or more uh can pioneer hit 100 I don't know I, I like the supplies right. The numbers are right, but is the Card Kingdom is offering thirty two fifty on the pack foils and forty two ninety on the promo foils. So pretty decent backing there, and it looks like there's at least a handful yeah. of copies that could be scooped in Europe. Um, that that are likely to make money. I mean, somebody's got. Two Japanese foils at forty apiece. That's a future hundred dollar card. Hmm. That's nice. There's not going to be many people that want that card, but where else are they going to get it? Japan. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> I suspect Pioneer is going to be per capita very popular in Japan. Like Magic's not that big of a game in Japan. It's not like the top TCG there. But amongst the people that play Magic in Japan, there's a hunger for competitive Magic much more so than say Commander. This year of Commander product mm-hmm. is going to go right over the heads of most Japanese players. So they're going to be mostly focused this year on Pioneer. Yeah, that's true. That's 100% right, which you know we have plenty of data that backs all this up that we know that this is the case. But that's an interesting sort of intersection of data that like 2020 is all about Commander, but nobody in Japan plays Commander. And all of the product this year is not for them. So what do they do instead? And it's, oh, they probably latch on the Pioneer really hard because that's kind of their their thing anyways. Yeah, so pretty clear heading into 2020, hmm. Pioneer specs are going to continue to matter uh, quite a bit. The meta game is still shifting. Um, and any further bans that take place in this meta will shift it even further. Though I have to say things like, uh, you know, we're not really seeing a lot of hardened scales right now, but that, that deck cannot be counted out permanently blue white control seems relatively immune to bannings um although i mean it could catch a planeswalker ban at some point little teferi would be my guess um as the most likely suspect but i don't think that stops the deck yeah in, it, in any way shape or form yep i'm on the same page i regard the blue white it would be teferi and it probably does not completely ruin the deck um blue white controls going to be around in some capacity whether it's good at the time is another question but it will definitely be around at the very least, and some people will try and make it work because some people just love blue-white no matter what. Yeah, it looks like, looks like I've got a $50 copy of Foil Kalidas up on eBay right now, and I'm, like, next in line to sell. There's nobody below me anymore. Mm. Sounds like it's time to take a be, page out of my playbook. Be, be, lot, be the most expensive well, There's like guy. a, ja- there's a the Japanese foil on eBay for um, 120 so I guess I'll just snap those copies off over in Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I, you know, as for how the format looks in general, I think that I'm just because like we don't see any, for instance, hardened scales or any what pick whatever deck you want to think about in, in all over the list today. That doesn't mean it's not good. It just feels like maybe there's just weren't any nobody bothered to show up with it this week. Like, I just don't know if the format's getting an, enough players and chairs and enough repetition to actually find the decks that are very good. Um, because a lot of people, for instance, are probably more interested in trying things than they are necessarily in winning 
I don't know. That could just be me talking out of my butt. My point being is if you don't see the deck in this week's results or next week's results, that doesn't mean it's not good. It just means nobody's playing it right now. It could mean that. And I think my favorite example of that is the Grishel brand decks in Modern, where every all 75 cards were in the format for years before somebody kind of put it together and showed up and went, oh, this is good. The other thing to keep in mind is that we have a triple Pioneer GP weekend at the end of January. And that is going to drive a lot of sales. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for that's, sure. that's one per continent. That's North America, Europe, and Japan all getting uh, their shot at glory for the first time on the big, on a GP stage. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there are players out there who are just kind of waiting for that those events. That's what will draw their attention. And they'll be like, oh, I'm you know I'm just going to wait and see how what happens at the GP. And then I'll kind of go from there. That's how I'll make a decision about what deck to buy and play. Right. Uh, which is also funny because are those gonna gonna have any coverage at all? Good question. Uh, they w- they wouldn't, right? Like, don't they just not cover basically not cover GPS anymore? I don't know for sure. <laughs> all right, Wizards, since your call to make here. Uh, biggest first new format in how many years? Like, people are really excited about it. And just not gonna wa- let anyone watch the. The triple GP weekend. Okay. It certainly feels okay. foolish fool, foolish to not at least cover one of those. Yeah, right? Like, like that, they're you're, not gonna cover all three, but maybe the North American one would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever they want to do, man. Um, all right. So segment four, uh kind of big overview here. Uh, what, how do you, how do you want to bite starting on this? Just look at our, our picks of the year first, kind of start there. I guess give a, a, a top down perspective. I did crunch some numbers. We spend some time prepping here, crunch some big numbers, trying to get a sense of how do we do on the whole, um, especially heading into 2020, where we intend to, uh, build a bunch of functionality around tracking the staff. Uh, spec calls against the membership and allowing the cream to rise to the top as it were with the people with the best ideas um, being offered staff gigs and so forth down the road Um, and all of us that are calling out specs publicly for the organization being called to task should they should they uh, not produce so I, i put out about 165 or so picks in the last year via the cast, mostly three picks a week, sometimes four, occasionally two. Um, And overall, pretty good. Um, Top 80 picks, so about half, averaged a 70% return. And that's not an annualized return of 70%. Most of those uh, showed that return within four to six weeks of the cast call being made. So that is a, you know, even if that... uh, if you want to call that gross, and then you're going to have to deal with shipping and fees and so forth to get your real results, you're I put you in a pretty good position with the majority of my picks. Then about, um, so if you put in like, say, a basket of $2,000, single copy of most of my picks, putting aside the um, inefficiencies that that would represent, you might have come out with about 1500 minus fees uh, for about a 70% gross return, maybe something closer to 40 to 50 um, but again, uh, better than that number because it wasn't fully, a lot of them were compressed. So you could have in theory ratcheted two or three times during the year and gotten easily north of a hundred percent results. 
on do, those do you, picks. By the way, sorry, just really quick, just want to tell all of our listeners what you mean when you talk about annualized returns, because I'm suspicious that not everyone knows what that is. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you're talking about investments um, or debt, uh, you know, if you owe people money on your credit card, you owe them 20% per annum. Um, but they often calculate compound interest on that, sometimes monthly, and you know it depends what kind of debt structure you're looking at. And in reverse, when you're investing in something, if you put $1,000 into it, and at the end of a given year, you get $100, then you had a 10% rate of return. But if you got that $100 six months in, and then you got to reinvest in the same thing, then you get a compounding effect where you actually end up with 10% on the 10% that you got. So if you put in $1,000, you got $1,100. Then on the next six months, if you got to invest into the same thing, you're not you're getting compound interest. You're getting interest on your interest. So if you had 110 and you reinvest it at another 10%, you end up with you know uh, 121, not 120. So the more times you get to compound during a year, the better your returns are going to get. And if you get a return in a very short period of time, you know, say your secret layer bundles you flipped inside two weeks, you have to figure out what the annualized ver version of the ROI was, both gross and net, like after all of your fees and costs, et cetera, and before, to give yourself, make sure you're comparing apples to apples versus your other specs. Because a spec that you get 25% on four times a year is actually better than one where you get 50% once a year. Um, and you want to make sure that you've got a spreadsheet to hit, to track all of that. Uh, and we do have a free one that we give away in the ProTrader uh, Discord that all the members can use. And some other members have built their own that is more custom tailored to their own adventures. And then, of course, the members that uh, run businesses have their own ac accounting software and have to deal with uh, generally accepted accounting principles, which is a whole different story. Because um, then you're yeah. dealing with like last in inventory versus first in inventory and so forth. Um, but the bottom line is you want to understand your ratchet, like the rate of return you're getting and how many times per year you can repeat that. Um, so on about half my picks, you did very, very, very well. Uh, on about 20% of the picks, you lost money. And about 30% of the picks are either flat or early at this juncture. Cause you know, stuff we picked four weeks ago on a 12 week, 12 month horizon, isn't really expected to have gotten there yet, but it's still worth taking into consideration so that you can figure out how long you're holding stuff on average. Um, so, I mean, across the full spectrum, it tended to be, you know, one to two picks per week getting there. Sometimes it was the entire week. Um, there were weeks leading into War of the Spark, uh, weeks around Modern Horizons, weeks when Pioneer was taking off, where we were just killing it because MGG Finance in general was killing it, that it, there was a lot of easy, low-hanging fruit um, lying around that everybody was talking about and uh, didn't require quite as much forethought to, to pick out. Um, and then I went ahead and kind <laughs> Listen, of... Listen, if we're going to balance my mistakes, I need full credit for the brainless picks that I hit out of the park. <laughs> sure, and it's just about... It's not that they're brainless so much as that sometimes things are obvious to everyone. Like, I don't think Smuggler's Copter was all that hard to call once we knew Pioneer was a thing. Um, but in other cases, you know, sometimes there are unique insights, like the, you know, trading in the MTGO uh, codes 
um, to goat bots at midnight on the night of the secret bundle drop was not something I would have remembered to do. Somebody else drew my attention to that on Twitter, and that brainstorm made me 70 bucks a bundle. I mean, that was a big deal. That guy made me hundreds of dollars. Um, hmm. So it, it, it certainly helps to have a network. Um, so we're looking over, like, top picks of the year. Um, guess I'll start... Let's see. There was, as I said... Something like 30 plus, 35 picks or so that were 50% plus returns. Um, as I said, many of which were within a month or two, some of which took longer. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll just stick to the top 10 of, of the year here um, after just name dropping some of the ones in in the other 20. So Azusa Lost But Seeking, Judge Foils got there. Johnny Mentor of Heroes out of uh, the Mythic Edition. Food Chain, Judge Foils. Chromatic Lantern, Force of Negation. Scalding Tarn, uh, Zendikar Foils had a nice arbitrage opportunity out of Europe at one point. Doubling Season, Judge Foils. Paradox Engine Foils. Weir of Invention Foils. Insurrection Foils. You'll notice a foil theme here. I take a lot of shit from the Discord about picking mm-hmm. foils all the time, but they make money when you pick them right. Mythic Edition yeah. 3 was like a double up in a very short period of time or pretty close to it. Pretty easy to get out over 500 and some of our people got out north of 600 if they uh, sent their copies over to Europe. Prismatic Vista uh, was good for like 18 to 34 or so for 80% plus returns. Past in Flames foils. Nykthos trying to nix non-foils. Um, Prismatic Vista non-foils as well. Scarab God foils have been making me money lately. I saw accusations on Twitter this week that that was speculators selling to speculators. That's a bunch of nonsense. I've sold four individual <laughs> copies to people. This Listen, week and I a just don't think speculator they selling to a, a speculator selling to a speculator is still a sale. <laughs> and you still made the money. <laughs> yeah, and and certainly that happens. Like you can have somebody in early on a cycle that then starts talking their book and convinces other people to buy stuff, but. Scarab God is a good card. Like, whether or not it is a staple of Pioneer has yet to be established, but it was already a great EDH card, great casual card, great cube card. So, and the foils were already relatively scarce when people started fooling around with it in Sultai decks. So, here we are. Uh, Teferi's Protection Judge foils uh, got there earlier in the year and then retraced. Teferi Time Raveler um, was good for a double up. Uh, I think... Credit to Paul Fuedo uh, for calling that out as his pick from War of the Spark early, early on um, to go 10 to 20. And then later I echoed that on cast. Chain Veil Foils did very well uh, leading up into War of the Spark. Bridge from Below Foils out of Modern Masters. Heading into Hogak. uh, uh, Brief. Uh, flirtation with dominance sliver queen when we heard there was slivers in modern horizon sliver queens i managed to out some close to 200 that i got in on sub 100 that was very nice uh judge foil uh azusa uh 35 to like 80 or something at one point before it retraced Um, but that was market pricing i guess that's the other thing to point out all the the peak pricing that i use for measurements here is market so these are Prices things actually sold at. Um, if I was just going by listing price, it would have been even better. But obviously it makes sense to be dealing with market prices when you're trying to figure out how you actually could have done. 
Uh, Karn the Great Creator going from 6 to 15 pretty easily. Ice Fang Coatle Foils 16 to 40 or so might do even better. Um, Oath of Nyssa Foils going from 5 to 13 at one point. And then I guess we're into my top 10. So, uh, 10th best spec of the year, Nyssa Who Shakes the World. Called pretty early on during War of the Spark previews at $2 to go to 5 plus, and it got to 6 Byla support was reasonably strong. There was definitely a brick play there that I made out of Europe. Uh, Mystic Forge out of M20 called to go from 2 to 6, and that's about where it got to. There was also a brick Bylas play there in the late summer um, for an easy double up plus. Leyline of Abundance non-foils. Um... Going that was also from M20. Going from a dollar to two dollar was the call, and the exit price uh, via brick got up to about three dollars before it caught a ban. So that was nice. Uh, paradoxical outcome out of Kaladesh going from a dollar to two fifty was the call on cast, and it got up to four, and it's still pretty much hanging out there. Um, another nice exit. Serum powder non foils out of IMA going from four to ten. They peaked at about seventeen. Uh, when the mulligan rule was changing over in the spring and people got all excited about being able to use this in modern. Mox Amber made us money twice during the year and got called twice. Most recently, it's been pretty stalled out from the last time I called it earlier this fall, but made a ton of money on it at $6 to $8. Uh, called it to go to 12 and it got up as high as 28 and I remember distinctly selling playsets at about 118.88 on eBay for a while uh, while I was in Hawaii. Um, that was a very nice one. So 300% plus returns there. Oath of Teferi foils called it to go $2 to $8 back in episode 154. Got up to 10 or so. Um, a nice return there. On paper, though, it's not the kind of card you sell playsets of. So uh, the buy list exit was a little bit more modest. Villas broker of blood out of m20 called a dollar to two dollar and it got up to five and i think my buy list exit was something like 350 or 375 with a nice thick brick and then the top spec of the year field of the dead out of m20 called it to go mm -hmm. two to five and the exit retail was closer to 1250 i think i was selling play sets around i want to say 3888 for a while something like that so Four to five hundred percent gains for people that were in early on that card. Worth noting that though there's a lot of foils on my success list, the top ten was dominated by non-foils in terms of uh, overall ROI, which makes sense. Um, the ability to unload large bricks to buy less and get max returns when you're in before people realize a card is good um, will typically be related to non-foils. Um, well, you know that's something that is always ideal, right? Like if I could only pick non-foils and sell a hundred copies of them every time, I would take that, of course, over everything else. But non-foils at this point in Magic's history are much harder to nail to be right on the money with than they used to be. I'm usually pretty happy on a foil, like if I'm getting 40 to 80% returns. With a brick of non-foils, I'm usually looking to double up plus. And this this grouping of top tens with eight of the top 10 being non-foils uh, reflects that. These are almost all of these uh, with the highest returns ended up being buy list plays. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of play playability, the front half of the year is very loaded with EDH and modern specs, and the last half of the year, of course, is unsurprisingly loaded with some co- a weird combination of standard, modern, and then transitioning into pioneer mm-hmm. plus EDH being consistently popular throughout, um, which is exactly what you would expect for 2019. Yeah, yeah. Uh, modern would have been probably would have had a really good end of the year too uh, with Modern Horizons if Pioneer didn't come along, but can't really complain about the pioneer can we um go ahead all right so before we jump into your list let me just go through some of my worst specs of the year um there's some goodies here uh unsettled mariner foils called episode 184 to go 13 to 25 claiming a 90% plus possible gain because unsettled mariner was all over the place in modern 5.0 lists for a little while there and then pioneer showed up and you can yeah. pick up you can pick up those foils right now at five dollars for a sixty percent plus loss over my uh, recommended in price. The thing is, is like I it's I don't feel like you can re- you should really take that as a loss because what the hell are we supposed to do about that? Like we were going to eat Pioneer, or we were going to eat Modern Specs right before Pioneer. I don't feel like that was a a failure on our part. Just there's no way to know. My, my version of that is it's a definitely a failure on our part, but not one we had any control over. It's still worth wow. calling it a failure and, and you know, compiling it in the stats because you want to get a sense of how chaotic is MTG Finance. Like how uh, vulnerable is the process that we uh, recommend every week to the winds of change that are beyond our control. One of the things that I that has kept me in the seat um focused on more on mtg finance in the last five years than i am even on my own stock portfolio is definitely that i think it is less susceptible to external forces than the general stock market with stock picks you have to be both very educated as to the specifics of the company in question in terms of how efficiently it's run the products that they have on offer what's coming down the pipeline how good is uh, how experienced is their executive team, as well as the nature of their industry as a whole and how they fit into that competitive landscape. But you also then need to be tracking the macroeconomic and political forces that can swing the market more broadly. You know, a giant economic downturn can affect a company that is otherwise doing very well. And I think that the all of that plus the abuse of the system that goes on at the highest ends of finance. Uh, highest tiers of finance um, makes it more difficult to predict results than it does in magic where yes you absolutely have to track multiple metagames and wizards can make calls like okay no more modern now pioneer but on the whole i still find that it is less chaotic um, with less variables to track than the broader financial markets i guess i don't I, I understand what you're saying. Um, it's, you know, if you start exempting the card, the, the changes that you had no control over, then you are kind of saying, well, the, the, you, you make it seem like it's less volatile than it is. Yeah. And the volatility is an important recognition. You need to recognize that that's a thing that's going on because exactly. that has a bearing. Now, I would make the corner keys argument that like Wizards announces a new format roughly once a decade. So like every like like if you started saying, oh, well, I didn't count this one, this card that lost money because it got reprinted. uh, And, you know, we couldn't have known that. It's like, well, duh, that's part of the problem. Like you have to include those because that's what you can get nailed on. 
But like a once in a decade type of thing is like, eh. <laughs> and also it was like, if you're talking about modern picks four weeks before Pioneer, I mean, that is like the, I, it's hard to think of a way of a harder wall to run into in the sure. last decade of magic investing than that. Right. And I, your, your, your overall point is fair. I'm just like kind of thinking about this and like, I don't want to blame myself for that. Like, <laughs> Interestingly, that's not even the only factor that I think targeted Unsettled Mariner, because even within, it's not well, like Modern is not being played, but Unsettled Mariner is not really showing up much in that format in its current incarnation. Part of it, that comes from all the pushed cards that intruded upon the space of Modern, you know, things like Oko um, pushing into the format and disrupting lesser decks. Um, you know, there's arguments being made this week that almost every deck that can possibly jam an Oko should be jamming an Oko. And you're seeing it in six or seven extremely diverse metas. Like somebody ran it in a mono red deck for Christ's sake, Um, which is insane. Yeah, I saw that. They're like, oh, how do I make mono red better? Let's just add Oko. And then they five vote. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, Uh, Mariner Mariner was a card of the moment that doesn't seem like it's going to get there anytime soon. So I'll I'll, I'll wear it as as a, you know, one of my albatross. Well, um, I, I, I want to stress that I wasn't defending the pick so much as I was giving you clearance on not having to call it a failure Fair. for the re- for the reason of like modern pioneer type of thing. All right. Um, so here, let me plow through the rest of this list so I don't chew sure, up sure, too sure, sure. much time. Hall of Helios of Generosity, which is my pick this week, uh, was a failure because when I first called it on episode 173, I called the foils at $20 and you can now get them at 13, uh, 20 to 32. Uh, I think at one point I, I mentioned it at 12 or 13, it got up to 20. I called it to go to 32 on the back of Theros. It never really got there. It retraced. And now I'm telling you to get into it again. So take all of that into consideration with a big old grain of salt. Now that I'm talking up, talking up, up this card again, and keep in mind, I own copies of the card. Um, I try to make it a big point to not talk my book for the sake of talking my book. If I didn't think the the thesis was solid on this card, I would not have brought it up again. Um, but at minimum, I'll wear it as a badge of shame for the people that I pushed into it when it was at $20. Okay. Uh, Vivian Champion of the Wilds. I called out... Uh, uh, came out of the gate pretty high for a rare um at eight dollars and it was a you know one of many planeswalkers in war that people seem to think was going to get there episode 171 i called it to go eight the foils to go eight to 15 you can get those foils today at three (laughs) dollars um part of this is war has a bunch of busted planeswalkers then they printed more busted cards and then yet more busted cards and then we caught up to oko Nissa, who shakes the world, of course, has been the most important green planeswalker. Uh, Vivian, Arcbow Ranger, uh, easily the second most important green planeswalker. Vivian, Champion of the Wilds, pretty solid long-term EDH card, but overshadowed by the more important Nissas and Vivians uh, currently in standard. So that's just, I don't think that's going to get there anytime soon. If it makes you feel any better, I have something like 200 or 150 uh nissa vettel forces <laughs> that i bought um which i'm not if i if i buy listed them today i'm pretty sure that i just i like break even on credit i might even make a profit on selling them 
but I was also in the, wow, this green planeswalker looks great. And then it just didn't take off and it's just taking forever to go anywhere. So, so I, I feel your pain there. All right. You, you mentioned a goblin this week. I had two I called that never got there. Goblin engineer. I was very pushy on this card in the discord mm. like buy some engineers engineers gonna get there one day and then when it showed up mm. triumphantly in urza for about eight weeks i was like see see and it did get up to the point where you could if you got in on our euro bricks real low because i think some of them were two dollars a copy or something like that when i was buying early um you probably got an exit between 350 and five which would have been great but if you got in later or you held too long, you got wrecked. Because not only did Urza move away from using Engineer, and then Oko showed up, and basically Oko plus Urza became the thing that is now the thing in modern. Um, Engineer just kind of stalled out. Like, I, I think I have 200 copies of this card. So I'm ho- at some point, two or three years down the road, I expect this to be a buy list play that will turn out just fine. But I, it's probably the deepest I am on a card that hasn't got there all year. Um, I called it at 425, episode 170 to get to 10. Highest it ever really got was 5. I definitely exited on 20 or 30 copies when the buy list was ripe, but got greedy and held the rest. Didn't pay out. Well, you know, Goblin Engineers is an interesting, uh, I guess, point of comparison contrast to um unsettled mariner because you I'm, I'm okay with calling goblin engineer a failure and i think that in this case the logic was very sound uh it's just that the normal variants of magic caught us out on this one because i was also really big on goblin engineer in fact i want to say that i was bigger on goblin engineer than you were at least at the outset like I think I remember you were talking, we were t- trying to decide between Goblin Engineer and something else. And I was like, you were, you were, you were, it was one of those like, which card do you think is better type of things or which pick do you think is maybe, better? Maybe give her a and you, Yeah, I don't think it was that. It was something else. And I was, maybe it was Emery, but I was like, no, I think it's, I think it's Goblin Engineer. I'm like, this card is busted. It's going to be oh, good in EDH. If you mean, in, mo- if you mean in modern, it was when they unbanned Stoneforge Mystic and people were trying to decide if it was a Stoneforge Mystic Urza deck or if it was going to be Engineer and Urza. And Engineer won, oh, that, might have Engineer been won that, origin- that initial battle, but then they printed Oko. Yeah. And, so and my, then they announced point, Pioneer. Yeah. I guess my, my point is that I was in the position that I also thought Goblin Engineer was very good. And it's not that our decision-making process was bad. It was that Wizards just printed more magic cards that were better. And that's what got us, right? What got us was the, yes, this card was good, but we didn't know what Wizards was going to do type of thing more so than a once in a decade thing occurred and we were on the wrong side of it. Goblin Pile Driver was the other goblin I called. Origins foils to go 5 to 12. This was on the back of knowing that goblins as a tribe was being reprinted in Modern Horizons and that they were giving modern goblins some of the missing pieces. And so I figured, well, Pile Driver foils haven't seen a reprint since Origins, so they're going to get there. 5 to 12, go get some. And it is still $5 today. Hmm. Has not moved one iota. There was a black-red goblin deck that did some serious work this year. I know that for a fact because I sold a bunch of goblin or auntie's hovels or whatever, the Mm black-red goblin card. 
Um, so I made some money off goblins regardless, but Piledriver didn't get me there. <laughs> well, it's a good card. Maybe, maybe one day. Uh, is it? It is legal in Pioneer, right? Because it was printed in one of the core yep, sets. Yep. So, so you've got you've got that angle. If my Rebel Master takes off, maybe your Pioneer will. I mean, he is pro blue, which is uh, that had lost its mm-hmm, relevancy mm-hmm. in Modern. Actually, like that's part of the, people thought that card was going to be busted in Modern uh because it had been so good in standard but the standard it came from the pro blue was very relevant and in modern at the time it was much less of a big deal um just because the blue cards in modern weren't good enough at the time but you know hero dominaria makes that pro blue uh uh, time rail i should say makes that pro blue look a lot more important than it did in pioneer yeah so just to wrap things up Tamiyo Field Researcher, similar kind of thing, called Foils to go 18 to 30 on the back of knowing that War of the Spark was all about Planeswalkers, thinking that would reinvigorate Atraxa. And other things like uh, Chain Veil and um, Paradox Engine definitely made money uh, in similar fashion. But reaching the lesson there was that reaching in and picking a specific Planeswalker to be a big thing, heading into a set full of even better Planeswalkers meant that there was never any hype cycle that was focused on it at all. And so I called it 18 to 30. I think foils are currently 20 to 22. So minor amounts of movement never really got there. And and it's going to take a long time for the rest to, to drain out just because nobody's thinking about the card. Um, then I'll finish up with two standard specs that were made in the same week. I'm going to call it my weakest pick week of the year. Episode 152, uh, Shit the Bed, picking both emergency powers to go 3 to $10 card is currently 55 cents um, for an 80% loss if you jumped in on some of those. Um, And March of the Multitudes, we had talked about a couple of times. Um, Now, Emergency Powers was my only 6 out of 10 spec of the year. So there is that. And March of the Multitudes was one of my only 7 out of 10. So I just didn't have very very many good ideas that week, I guess. March of the Multitudes, I called to go 4 to 10 because it looked like maybe there was a token deck. And I just should stay away from standard specs for the most part. Like, I don't think I bought any of these, but I do feel bad if somebody else did because they're basically still $4. Like, it peaked at $4. It has not moved at all. And it's probably, mm. it's actually probably below four if I'm, if I'm really thinking about it because no one's playing the card right now. <laughs> uh, March of the Multitudes, you can um, currently pick up at 272 So I've actually cost you money. Um, if you bought in it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we all have those weeks. However, on on the whole, pretty proud of my pick set this week, this year. I would, I would guess, I I, I would put this pick set toe to toe with pretty much anybody in the industry. Uh, if you can, if fifty percent yeah. of your picks can average a seventy percent return in say three months or less, that is about as good as it gets. Well, you're basically in a position where you could sp- spend a hundred dollars on every card that comes out every you spend a hundred dollars on every card that you think is a good spec and at the end of the year you will have definitely profited I, I think probably the most important thing to point out in this in a situation like this is that this is not possible because i'm so smart this is possible because i am very well connected now the I'm constantly talking to vendors. I'm constantly stealing ideas from people that I see other places. 
I'm listening to you. I'm listening to other staff members. I'm listening to our Discord all the time. I'm tracking other people that run other content platforms. I'm reading as much stuff from the pros as I have time for. And the, the, the core of good MTG finance is, again, not to be original. It's not about James's ideas. It's about curating the ideas from the people that are smarter than you, filtering out the noise, and then going deep where it makes sense. I would go so far as to say be, having an original idea is the worst thing you could do. Sure. Uh, because the whole being clever or original isn't the point. It's knowing what everyone else is trying to do before they're doing it. Be clever and on your own be in deck building. Having a really clever spec idea doesn't matter if no one wants to buy the card, even if you think they should buy the card. And you don't want to be set up Uh, where you have to buy a thousand copies to attempt to move a market that where nobody agrees with you and there's no actual latent demand for the card in question. Yeah, my 200 Martin Stromgalls (laughs) are what a clever spec looks like. Yeah, and my 300 aggressive minings will, will can hang out in the red deck with Martin. Yeah, uh, let's see, Martin Stromgold. By the way, ridiculously good EDH card. Uh, if you've ever played against this thing, <laughs> like play, Talk that like, like someone attacks you with it, someone attacks you with this card once, and you go, "Oh, apparently I have to go buy this card." Um, although I will say, lowest price is about four dollars on that on Martin now. And wait, give me a second here, Martin Stromgold. I ordered so many of these things. Uh, God, the good news about this is this is a podcast and I can cut out this. I'm curious. So I bought 60 of these from Channel Fireball in, or from Star City three years ago. And it looks like I paid roughly a dollar eighty for them. I play I picked up copies at all three conditions. But my my near mint ones were two dollars, some SP ones at one seventy. And CK's So I could definitely get CK's offering a dollar eleven credit right now. Yeah. And four is the low on TCG player. I really we need to get in with Jimmy and uh <laughs> the other one. Uh Josh, and Jimmy and Josh. Get them Josh, yeah. Uh, I'd be like, hey, you know, how, how much to get you to put this card in one of your decks this week? <laughs> like, can we can we do something with that? If I if I put uh, out a tweet that suggested that, it would it would be my shit storm of the month. Yeah, yeah, the people would not care for that. It, and, it's uh, a good thing I I'm not really looking to poke bears for no reason because there are yeah. some very amusing tweets that I can put out there to troll people. <sighs> Every month, I'm going to make my Twitter profile a picture of a card that I want people to spec on. <laughs> just like, just I'm not going to say what's going on. I'm just going to pick, put the photo in my Twitter avatar and hope subliminally incite purchases. Yeah, yeah, it's my technique, and I'm going to tweet influencers a lot. All right, before we talk over the year as a whole, let's talk through you, some of your specs. Hit me with your uh, top ten best and worst. Well, I think overall. My profile differs from yours a little bit. I think I had fewer kind of home runs than you did. Um, I think that you probably tend to shoot 
a little for a little higher than I do. Um, but at the same time, my lows are not probably not nearly as low. So I counted six cards that never really went above where I advertise them. Um, and it uh, looks like that puts me in roughly about 6% of my specs lost you money. That's a nice number. Um, now, a good a way. How many did you say were flat? I don't remember. Okay, so I think I'm probably in the ballpark of like 60%. Some like probably 50 to 70% of my specs are roughly what I told you to buy them for, or maybe they're like 20% higher, 30% higher. So there's like they've moved, but it's not any amount that you would have gone and sold them. So a lot of my stuff is just kind of still where it was when I talked about it. Now, most cards I pick, I'm not expecting to turn around in two to six months. You know, we put mid to long on many of our picks. And keep in mind, these are all picks from this year. We're not talking about 2018, although that would be interesting to go back and look at like 2017 and 2018 picks. Um, and in fact, when I went through and looked through a bunch of these cards, I found some that were flat. And I'm like, really? This didn't move. And I think Counterflux is the one that I remember seeing. And I went and checked. I'm like, Counterflux is probably still a good buy. And like, it still shows up on cards that get put into decks today. Uh, so even though it's essentially the same price it was when I talked about it, it still looks like a good spec, which I think is an interesting case study because you can say, wow, there are only, you know, 40 copies of this card, this card and foil on TCG player. Uh, the EDH demand is there. You know, there's some cube demand. I think this card, you know, is probably kind of poised to move. And then I come back like six months later and nothing has changed. Not a single number has changed. Same number of copies, same pricing data. It's just like, okay, like this still looks like a good buy to me. I guess just like so few people are buying it right now that they're not outpacing the supply. Um, In any case, uh, I went through and gathered some of them. Uh, Let's see. So I'm in the same boat as you and that I had a lot of foils. Uh, because they just tend to be lesser supply type cards, you know, that are easier to kind of twist to dial on. Um, just guy ascendancy did well in modern, right? With when Emery came out, right before, uh, right before Pioneer, that was week one eighty five, right. week one eighty three. Yep, hmm? I recall. Yep, uh, week. Yeah, week 183, the foil Mishra's Baubles. Uh, you know, Urza was doing a lot of work at the time. This is right after Hogak had been banned. Um, those those jumped 11 to 20, so not quite a double up. Animate Dead, out of Eternal Masters, a couple of weeks prior, around episode 182. Uh, that went 7 to 13, so not a double up per se, um, but still decent. Uh, and that might even be worth a revision. I don't remember what the price on that is today. Uh I had once upon a time extended art foils as a buy for 75 to 150, and they did do that. Although I'm betting the number of foil once upon a time, extended art foil once upon a time that sold at 150 was probably like one. So, but, but, but there was a, there was a brief interval a week or two long where you could get out in between those two numbers and have had a very nice result in the short term. Yeah. And really, it's some of this data is kind of lost to time um, because things can be live so short and not necessarily reflect within the price graph. But I, I will say as kind of a knock against us that it's really easy for me to look at once upon a time extended art foils and go, okay, 
I said you should buy this at 75 and sell at 150. The card technically hit 150, so I doubled your money if you bought this card. Okay, you had to have had that card listed and sold it within probably like a 72-hour window. And any other time, you would have had to sell this at like 110. And even that might have only been a couple weeks. And now I think this is below the 75 because it's gotten banned everywhere again. Uh, just like, okay, so... The, the, you know, we can paint a picture where I said to buy it at price A, it eventually hit price B, victory, but in reality, it was only a victory for a very small portion of people. So I, so I, so I own that. Um, episode 175, Renan 6, one of my non foil picks. Uh, they were 45 bucks at the time. They were just crushing modern, gaining a lot of steam in legacy or had a lot of steam in legacy. I said they would go 45 to 70. They actually hit 100. So, did better than I thought they would. Um, I was pleased with that one. Uh, and another Modern Horizons non-foil pick, Hex Drinker. I had these at $11. They ended up hitting 25 which is what I was shooting for. Um, that was like, that was like overnight. I think I, we like posted that cast like Wednesday night and I think Thursday morning they were gone. And I don't think that I, I think I just happened to time it just right. Because uh, I'm pretty sure they were gone. Like when our, when our listeners were like, Listening to the cast just that had been posted, they were already just about gone. Yeah, uh, I had foiled. Just a point on the, on those two modern horizon specs. I think they're good examples of um, highlighting that for all the people that have shit on modern horizons lately as a MTG finance failure on social media. Um, for those people that were on the ball, it was far from a failure. If you got if you got greedy and a, held all the way through the summer period and never sold a Modern Horizons card, but you were buying them up front, that was just silly. Because like when Renan Six hit hundred plus, I just I sold every copy I got my hands on. Like whether they were coming out of my Russian boxes and I was selling them for like one twenty a piece, or English copies that I sold anywhere from between eighty and a hundred, that already felt like peak pricing. So exit, exit, exit. When Hex Drinker took off briefly, sold through on those. Um, you know, sold whatever Hogax I managed to source locally, even though I did get caught holding some foil Hogax that I bought from afar. But I mean, flipping flip, flipped cases of product up front. I mean, a lot of money was was made on Modern Horizons before it crashed, and that's not just at the individual level. That's also true of the vendors. Like vendors made a lot of money on Modern Horizons too. It was they were bragging about it to me at the time, and now. You know, if they went deep on that product and they got caught holding it, wah, wah, wah. And, you know, aggressive buy lists that were set up on Modern Horizons cards in the summer definitely um, probably represent the, you know, single biggest point of failure for the product. Like, it's easy to paint a picture where Wizards is unfair or was at least minimum inefficient in their handling of that scenario not you know signaling pioneer while they were pushing modern horizons because the vendors that i've talked to in the last week or so and i'll get into this more deeply shortly i basically said that their modern you know inventory if they were you know big on modern is a pretty big albatross around their necks right now Mm. uh yeah who people on twitter are saying that modern horizons was a Hashtag MTG finance failure. Oh, yeah, because people that were were holding specs from the summer or 
are looking at the basket of Modern Horizons cards have been on a steep downturn since Pioneer was announced. Well, yeah, because they announced Pioneer. (laughs) But the thinking around Modern Horizons and getting in on it was very good at the time and made money up front. And a lot of the Modern Horizons stuff still, A, has potential to get there, as we saw with Ice Fang Quaddles just recently. Um, And a lot of the... The good news is that a lot of those Modern Horizons cards are still good in EDH, and it's just going to take them longer to get there. So while it's definitely a failure in the in the midterm, and if you were running an aggressive buy list on Horizons cards and got caught holding like 60000 in inventory, yeah, you're in a tough spot. But there's not a whole lot you could have done to change or play the game differently given the lack of signaling from Wizards about Pioneer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I blindsided everybody, so I don't... That's why I was saying I don't think we should feel bad about it. Just we had talked about the need for, you know, I remember over the course of like a year, a year and a half, we went from we're not going to see a new format anytime soon to, well, maybe it is time to start thinking about it to we're going to get a new format, but it's probably at least six months off. It could be easily two years. Um, and I think we were we were talking about that just like a couple of weeks before Pioneer was announced. Uh, Wizards is just way ahead of the curve from where everyone was expecting it. Uh, yeah. All right. In any case, foil mana confluences. Um, those were those were decent. Uh, I wanted you to buy at twenty. They hit fifty. Uh, it pained me to make that pick because I have I shit on mana confluence at essentially every interaction, <laughs> but like cards yeah. still managed. Uh, that was way bit, that was earlier in the year. Deathrite Shaman foils out of Eternal Masters went thirteen to thirty three. Um, that was a good one uh let's see and and those i i can easily imagine a future where death right shaman ends up good enough for pioneer and becomes a problem uh yeah yeah we have one fetch land right now which is and not really a lot of other enablers in pioneer that are seeing a lot of play at the moment De- i'll tell you this way death right shaman feels like it's one card away we're one card away from death right shaman being like a, yep. a, a, a rocketing into pioneer staple with Stitcher Supplier in the format. Um, they also just announced that dredgy-looking green saga for Theros. Mm-hmm. That flips cards in the yard and then brings one back later. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's good enough, but it's that kind of thing that you're looking for. to Something that in ter- on turns one or two allows you to reliably use the death right is what's going to turn that wheel i mean i like i could see uh like for, first of all i'm kind of wondering if people are even playing death right and uh whatchamacallit at the moment um stitcher supplier like i wonder how many people are trying that because that seems like it should be good enough um and if it's like i just i wonder if like maybe it's good enough and just nobody's really putting the reps in to figure that out Great Merchant of Asphodel, Foils, that was a recent one, uh, 9, I called it 9 to 20, it hit 25, in fact, that skyrocketed, but that got is getting reprinted in Theros, um, which I'm pretty sure I highlighted at the time, although I probably said I wouldn't expect it in Theros because that card was such a big deal in Theros, it seemed weird to bring it back. And, and I'm pretty certain I said no way too powerful, but pros are saying this week, overrated don't worry about it mm, did they pl- did, did they play Theros standard like were they there uh ari lax made a big deal about it said that it's a trap <laughs> card that mono black rarely needs it 
blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, that might have been true at the time, but the card was a sledgehammer. And, like, maybe that version didn't need it, but maybe the new one will. I don't know. Card was powerful. Well, I, I don't know what Erebos looks like in this set yet, so yeah. show me the Black God before we talk. Right. Although he was barely relevant. Well, he, he was, like, kind of relevant, but he was not the the go-to. Um Winter Orb Foils, uh, EMA did some work for me this year. Uh, those were, I said, yep. 15 to 40. They were 45, so that was a 200% gain there. Um, I timed that pretty well. Uh, Tatiova, Benthic Druid, back at like 179. Um, they, I called those at 6, and they ended up hitting 20. So a lot. these are now hitting numbers higher than I called them at. Like, I said 6 to 15, and it went to 20, so that did really well. Um, who would have guessed a blue-green card that rewards you for land drops and EDA should be popular? Um, and now we're getting, I, I feel like I have these in a box that I haven't taken them out to sell. Yet. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I, I got me scrambling to go look at some stuff. Um, and now we're hitting my top five and you're going to see kind of why I was thinking about, uh, that Eponym promo of Nissa's. I'm not going to scroll up. What's wrong with you? Uh, Nissa's pilgrimage. So my fifth best card of the year by percentage was whining constrictor. I called those foils at two bucks, and they ended up hitting seven um, out of Cal. You know the Kaladesh pack foils because hardened scales was looking real good in Pioneer, so that's a three hundred percent gain. Then uh, Nantuko Vigilante foils uh, out of Legends. They were a dollar, and they went to Legions. Leg- yeah, sorry. No, Legends. I, I, I wrote no. L-E-G, or, you know, you are right. Legions, Legions, Legions. Sorry. Yes, Legions. Fine. Apologies. They went a dollar to five dollars because they were a, a Legions foil with no reprints that morphed, had a good morph ability, and then they printed the morph stuff. And it was, well, they printed the morph stuff, and I was like, this is a card people will go buy if they want to play morph in EDH because it's a relevant morph. And why would you not pay it? You would pay a dollar for this foil and you would pay $5 for this foil. So buy the dollar ones. Uh, so that was a, that was a big jump there. Then mystic barrier non foils uh, went 50 cents to five to three fifty. I called 50 cents to five. They ended up paying three fifty for, uh, for like a 600% gain on out of the, for Pramicon that like weird wall deck, weird wall commander um, backslide foils, also, because of Morph, uh, I called it 50 cents. They hit $5. And that um, scale up non-foils. Uh, no, that can't be right. Nope, I got a number here wrong. That's not right. Give me two seconds while I look this up. Generally speaking, I'm going to argue that your the picks that you that made our people the most money, the pro traders and listeners, are likely further back down the line. Because some of this stuff, like Nantaku, Nantaku Vigilante, the foil's going from a dollar to six or five. In theory, you're going to sell that on eBay between four and five. And then after shipping and time spent, it's not going to be as nearly as impressive. Whereas your Monica, Mana Confluence foil double up, Hex Drinkers, Ren and Sixes, Once Upon a Time, if you timed it right, um, all that stuff was you know, much more likely to be able to be sold as play sets and for bigger chunks of money um, versus the hourly rate. So there, there are some really good picks in, in the middle there. Um, 
But I don't know how many mystic barriers people were able to exit out of. Okay, so I got my wires crossed on scale up. You can ignore that one. Um, but I, I get, yeah, I, I agree with you that like people probably didn't make a ton of money on backslides and mystic barriers and Antuco vigilantes. But I'm looking as I'm looking at this data, I'm like, well, they maybe they could have, right? Like, I don't want to put backslides into on foil backslides into envelopes at 350 or four bucks a piece like right that doesn't sound fun um and you're probably not going to sell a million of, you know you're not going to sell tons of them but clearly there was some solid gains there and i'd ha- yeah i'd have to go back and check all the buy list data to see how well they compare to see if the buy list back any of this up so i think it's I, I, you know, it's not surprising to see the biggest percentage gains on these small cards that had some good moves. I think that they can work for you. Um, and I, I'm wondering if maybe I'm supposed to give these more credit in 2020 than I did this year. But I agree with you that, like, the cards that made our listeners money were, like, entries 6 through 10, Winter Orb, Death Rate Shaman, Grey Merchant, Tatiova, like you said, Ren and Six, Ren and that, six that stuff seven. kind of in the middle that like, okay, I can buy and sell one of these and make as much, you know, the percentage isn't as high, but I make and sell, made as much as I would have if I'd done 10 backslides. Yeah, I mean, the, the low the low value EDH foils that you know you're going to be selling one at a time, the problem is that if they're niche enough, the buy list doesn't backing doesn't get there. So, for instance, Card Kingdom's Mystic Barrier backing is thirteen cents or whatever. So that is, that doesn't help. And ideally, I think that we're better off steering people towards bricks, like stuff that they can send in in bricks. Like I, I I'm putting together a buy list today that's got a bunch of nesting dragons in it. Somebody called that on some other platform. wasn't my original idea by any means. Pretty sure I picked them up over in Europe for like three twenty-five or something, maybe a year and a half ago or whatever. And it's a easy double up, sending in fifty copies. And that the overall texture of that buy list is going to be very similar. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to buy one foil then took a vigilante either. Uh, I want to buy. I want to be the first person to the market who buys eight of them or something from one vendor. And then gets to sell them. But I, I agree with you for the most part. Yeah. De- de- depending on some of the price points, some of that stuff is best served through like TCG Direct, where you're ta- where they're taking a big chunk off the top, but because you don't have to individually handle it, um, it can work out better for those kinds of specs. Like we have, that's not stuff I tend to sell because of how I operate uh, both on social media and on eBay. I don't want to be selling 6 or $7 stuff that I paid a dollar or $2 for. My minimum is kind of like I want a two dollar thing that sells for fourteen or fifteen. Like I sold a Weaver of Lies foil yesterday for about fourteen that I picked up for a dollar when Morph became a thing in the summer. But if it was four, I probably wouldn't even have bothered to, to list it. But there are definitely people running TCG Direct focus stores in our Discord that would be all too happy to follow up on on that list of your top specs mm-hmm. because it would just make more sense for them in the way because they don't have to manually handle each card. They could take the eight copies they scooped early on in the process, send them into TCG player and know that somebody else was going to be wasting their time 
well, make it four bucks a pop. Yeah, so getting TCG player to be the one to package all of your cars is certainly is what I would consider living the dream. Um, well, it's, it's pricey, but it works better for certain kinds of specs. Right. Where your your own time is too valuable. If you're 16 and you're throwing money around at stuff, that's a different story. You value your time differently. But if you're you know 25 30 40 years old and you got a full-time job you got to think about things a little differently well yeah but that's uh (laughs) yeah uh and i maybe this makes me sound like a hypocrite after we talked about in segment one or you know well pre-segment one where i was like uh, i don't want to put that much time and effort into selling cards every week like that adds up too much uh maybe maybe I think I see um, I see these types of smaller ball cards as like potential opportunities to do large swings at and try and leverage the larger percentage gains to make up for that they're a little more annoying to deal with. But I also respect not wanting to deal with that. And I don't think I had any backslides or Nantuko vigilantes. So the the um it's, to contrast it with, say, your Nissa's pilgrimage pick, the nice thing about that one is that it could sell as a four of. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it's got a pioneer pedigree and it's got some EDH demand. So maybe you'll sell one at a time here, one or two here or there to EDH players, hopefully on top of a larger order. Um, but you could also end up selling, selling them in play sets and it's got buy list potential if it stays popular in multiple formats. So I think that's like if you're aiming at that small ball stuff, that's your sweet spot. You want to be covered from multiple angles so you don't get caught holding where you've spent too much time thinking about something that was only going to make you 10 bucks total. Yeah. Overall, do you think you – are you happy with how all of your stuff went, all your picks this year? My personally? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean I'm very happy with my year. Um, I think that big – a big part of this year going so well had almost nothing to do with me. Mm. Um, the In the sense that I think the market was very well positioned to support individual speculation for the first six months or so, uh, six to eight months. And then Magic as a whole ran into some problems that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Okay. Um, so it's been a very good year. I don't know if it's repeatable. Um, which brings me to a tweet that I, I posted a few days ago, um, where I asked, said for magic vendors and MTG finance folk, do you expect magic, the gathering to be more or less or similarly profitable in 2020 versus 2019? Um, 18% of respondents said more profitable or, and 25% said about the same. So that's 43% saying at least as good, if not better. 30%, 29% said less profitable, and then there was 28% that just wanted to see results. You can ignore those. Um, overall, that's a pretty positive outlook, really, because there's a lot of doom and gloom being tossed around. Um, you know, Brainstorm Brewery's been been talking about the risks um, for LGS owners heading into 2020, and we've talked about it to us from, a, from different angles or with different uh, convictions. Uh, recently but you know what what do you read out of that take from 327 votes on my twitter profile well that's more pessimistic than i would have anticipated i think that was what struck me was 30 percent of people thinking they're going to be 
that this coming year will be less profitable. After a year that did this well, I would anticipate that most people would be real high. Like, essentially, wizards made people money without them having to be smart or right, but they don't real they accredit to their own. They credit their success to their own good decisions rather than just magic having done well for them. And then they're thinking they're going to be able to do it again this year. Well, if you cut out the people that just wanted to see results, it's 40% of MDG finance folk saying that they think next year will be less profitable. So yeah. the majority, 60%, still thinks it's, it's going to be as good or better. You, you have you have nearly twice as many people thinking it's going to be less profitable than more profitable. It's like It's not two to one, but it's like... Five to three. Sure, but between as good or better versus less, it's a 60-40 split. Yeah, I guess I was sort of, I don't want to say ignoring the, about the same people, but like, I, I I would have guessed that less profitable would have been the lowest answered option here. The funny thing is, I, I, I think that you could you could make the argument that these ratios between those three scenarios better the same worse might actually relatively closely near the operational potential of um, various businesses meaning that the 18 percent that expect more profitable that's your top 20 percent of operators who think that no matter that even given what they know about the current circumstances they're firing on all cylinders and they're going to do fine. They've got a game plan. They're going to execute. And they think that they are relatively well insulated from the various dynamics that are in play. Then you've got the middle group that figures, you know, we've been here a long time. We're going to be here next year and the year after that. Our operation is either relatively low overhead. And so we think we can suffer through the storm or it's high overhead, but it's big enough operation, well-established enough, you know, your Star City Games, your Channel Fireballs, your Cool Stuff Inks, whatever, um, that, you know, will ride it out through sheer force of presence in the market. Um, and then you've got the people that are really pe- pessimistic about next year that I would read as either we're already in trouble and these dynamics don't help or um, don't have a particularly... Uh, insightful read on the market and just have being aware of the various factors are not pleased about what it seems to indicate to them about Wizards' commitment to support them as vendors of the game. Um, I did put a reasonable amount of effort over the last week because I've been off my day job um, heading into the holidays to hit up every vendor that is willing to talk to me. I've got a pretty decent network built out all over the world. Um, and got pretty much the same story from everybody. Um, and the story was was as follows. That 2019, for about the first six to eight months, as I referenced earlier, was very, very, very good. Um, that products were hitting, like Ravnica Block was okay-ish, but then, uh, you know, the Mythic Editions uh, were something people could make, stores could make money on. Uh, and then we kind of got in rapid succession... War of the Spark, Modern Horizons, and the Core Set, all of which were pushed, and they made people a bunch of money. But then we started to get into the Hogak problems, and then heading into, um, you know, Field of the Dead problems, Nexus of Fate decks, Oko being a, a problem all over the place, 
and the bottom fell out of the game for a lot of LGS owners. People telling me the same thing kind of over and over again about how they haven't fired a standard event in a while, but Pioneer specs are like Pioneer cards are doing well for them, but that's got to be balanced against all the modern inventory they have that isn't selling. And, you know, casuals and EDH players are, are kind of acting as the anchor that's keeping them even selling magic for the time being, because, you know, between Pioneer and EDH, that's all that's really selling. Um, and, you know, one store owner I talked to the other day telling me that um, Magic was the number one product in the store. Um, and this they run a, you know, this isn't just a random hobby shop. This is a store that has run PTQs and so forth in the Midwest. And, you know, Magic went from number one to number three for them in about three months. Um, and this jives with other, you know, other anecdotal evidence that other people have been collecting and, you know, the guys on Brainstorm Brewery, how they've been talking about it. And when I put out, you know, a few other surveys or questions on Twitter over the last month or so, like how are things going, getting a lot of the same kind of feedback, like not being able to fire standard events, um, confusion over the interactions between um, you know, LGS level events and the play, what is now called the players tour and kind of the dismantling of the dream to play the game, see the world and its effect on the community as a whole. Um, the strong signaling by wizards that they're focusing on commander products going into 2020. Um, the perceived competition that comes from wizards, uh, selling singles even more directly via the secret layer bundles than they were previously with things like mythic edition, um, SDCC sets, etc. So, I mean, this is all stuff we've talked about, um, in the past. When you're thinking about 2020, what, what do you see as the biggest opportunities and threats for MTG finance? Well, opportunities is definitely the commander product. And we know how, Commander, commander cards react to new generals. They tend to move a lot of cards that nobody would have really thought to move before. Um, you can get, you can get, I mean, my, the, all those morph cards at the top of my list are examples, but there's plenty of stuff like in the, in the middle of a pack that, you know, does the same type of thing. Um, every time some new commander gets released, there's usually like one to three kind of sleeper cards that explode because it's just the commander they needed. We're going to get a lot of new commanders this year, which is going to open up a ton of opportunities for those cards to just go nuts across the board. Um, if anything, this will kind of put that to a test. You know, normally like 20, 2019, 2018, you're looking at the commander product, which comes out that gives us roughly, it's more than five new commanders, but essentially five new four to five play spaces for the commanders to exist in. And then like two to three generals in that play space, like a Minotaur was, you know, that general, but there was other cards that kind of cared about the same stuff. And then a couple of cards in each set. So you were basically getting five payoffs each year, five, five places you could get paid off the one, each major set. And also the commander product were the big ones. Uh, obviously, the commander product was going to get you there. The standard sets might have something they might not, but they usually do. This year, it's going to be more than that. And does that is 
is that much frenzied, that much sustained action, that many, that many new generals for over the course of the year going to be able to support the frenzy that we're used to seeing with them. Um, And I'd have to look at the release schedule. Uh, It's, I mean, maybe that the way it plays out, we don't get an additional, we don't get that many more new commanders than we would in years past in terms of the timing, right? Like we'll get a couple with Theros and then like, there'll be the, the, like the couple Theros commander decks that get released or whatever, or the cure, uh, cure ones. Um, so maybe we get like one or two extra legendary creature dumps, but then the volume of them all come at the end of the year when we get like the 70 and commander masters. And it's just, nobody can pay attention to that many commanders at once. And so cart commanders that would have driven price spikes if they had been released a little more off cycle, get just completely missed because there's too many exciting things to look at. But overall, I think that's going to be one of the biggest places that you'll be able to make money is just with all these new generals showing up card after card after card is going to be spiking because it just does exactly what that guy needs it to do. You know, is that kind of what you were thinking or, or do you see opportunity elsewhere? No, I mean, I'm on board with most of that. I think that the the opportunity, there are there's a, bl- a strong blend of opportunities and threats from these commander products. As you said, the, the majority of the new commanders are backloaded at the end of the year. So the, there's, I think, three commander decks for Ikoria that should land late April or early May. And then two more along with Zendikar in the fall. And then six weeks later, you're going to be popping Commander Legends, and it's going to be a complete shitstorm. And I worry that at that point in the year, it's going to be very difficult to pick um, Commander-specific specs because EDH rec data is likely to be <laughs> a mess. neck and neck <laughs> for a while. Like, I would say the top... Whereas usually you're trying to figure out which of the five generals are going to be the top three from a given set. At, for that set, you might be looking at 15 or 20 generals, and they might be relatively close for a while, and only after a long period of time will it, uh, will it become clear which of them are the most exciting to the community as a whole. In a situation where they dump 100 generals on you, the, prob- the specs you want to be in are the specs that are just good in EDH in general. Your wilderness reclamations your smothering ties your cyclonic rifts etc the stuff that is general agnostic that just floats on the wave of hype of, of for the format not the needs of a specific general i don't want to be buying foil backslides heading into that period i want to be buying soul rings well, or whatever well i, I th- you know like that at the cheapest possible brick price in europe or something you're because no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Like, I, DJ calls out Soul Ring every year whenever they put it into a Commander product. Go buy some Soul Rings cheap. Hold them for a year. Thank me later. He's always right. Like, I, for the first time, I, I went ahead and followed that advice this summer. We, I got a brick of a, 100 Soul Rings from Europe for $1.25 or whatever. And the buy list uh, currently at CK is at uh, 260 so that's more than a double up in less than six months with absolutely no effort. Hmm. And I would expect that we're going to see like Arcane Signet get catch a reprint and pull similar shenanigans. 
there's a threat in the sense of the for some green commander foils because we're getting that like ftv style product in the summer with eight green commander foils so things like uh zendikar resurgent for instance could show up there as a foil that's currently about the right price to get put into that product um and but a lot of other stuff um for instance foils that line up with cards that just got reprinted in mystery boosters as with the torment of hailfire pick from the uh pro trader discord tonight um those are very well positioned because they probably have no other way that they can be reprinted this year like the commander legend set is going to be so stock full of the commanders they're giving us with some cards that work with them that it's going to be hard for them to print i would think more than you know three five maybe seven key commander reprints alongside them so something like a torment of hailfire could show up in commander legends but what is the specific percentage possible like likelihood of that probably pretty low now on the flip side of things the mystery booster non-foils have not really responded like have Basically, first of all, the mystery booster versions of a lot of those cards go for more than their original printings, just because they're hard to find, because the mystery boosters are only being opened at one GP every weekend, and that GP is in a different geographic location all the time. So in the same way that with Mythic Edition 1, where they had the the, the one-day sale, and then they had extra left over, so they shipped it to 13 different GPs around the world... And the prices on those stayed really high for a long time because those GPs were all over the place. You're going to see the same thing with the mystery boosters. But when the mystery boosters at the LGS level land in a couple of months, I think it's either March, late March or early April, um, I would expect that trend line to reverse. So you really want to be getting out of these. You, you, you have been given a gift, a moment of respite, as you will, of three or four months where you know what's coming in those LGS uh, booster boxes, but the price hasn't crashed yet, which means you should be bylisting the shit out of your non-foil torment of hailfires or whatever it is you're holding that's in the mystery boosters. With an eye to the following factoid, everything in those in that set is a mythic. So if you're holding Elish Norns, that's a bigger priority to buy list than say whatever random common or uncommon shows up there because total percentage of in existing inventory is less challenged on the commons and uncommons than it is on the mythics just because of the way that they, they printed that set and collated it. Yeah. So, so that's certainly an opportunity. Um, I think one of the, there's certainly is this lingering threat of what is wizards, uh commitment to competitive magic i'm pretty sure that there's something weird this year where like the players tour is a seven month uh season instead of 12 and there's no world championship at the end the own the next scheduled world championship is at the end of 2021 which is going to be a longer than average season which seems like they're giving themselves an out to if the economics don't add up on this version of the players tour by uh, like midway through the year they may call an audible and change the structure of everything for the next longer season so that's certainly worth keeping an eye on like does gp attendance continue to suffer does channel fireball events start sending signals that gps are going to be reduced or will they reshuffle the deck on that double down on it and try to you know come at the gathering aspect of it 
more intensely. Um, you know, mystery boosters were clearly designed to help them get butts and seats for GPs. Um, and given what we've seen from some recent constructed GPs, like I think GP Oklahoma had something like 350 players or something. And two years ago, they had 800 plus. But we don't have access to the butts and seats numbers for the side events. If the command zone side events and, you know, mystery boosters and so forth are making up the difference, if the bodies are just shifting from the main event to the side events, that's fine. That's that's healthy. Um, that's just a, a shift in focus for, in terms of what players care about um, based on how Wizards has been leading them by the nose. But if overall GP attendance is down by, say, 40%, and that's consistent across the globe, well, you got you definitely have some problems because while I, be, I I believe strongly that it's in Wizards' best interest to both have an organized play network and LGS is at the bottom of that. If they there are multiple points of failure, if LGS start collapsing at a significant rate, and or GPS uh, no longer exist, <laughs> then I think that I think Wizards and Magic. Uh, has walked into a trap of their own making and they would have some serious problems. Those would be signal, those would be things that would send me looking to buy list heavily, things that I am holding longer term. So that would be stuff I would be keeping an eye on as potential threats heading into 2020. That's all all pretty reasonable. I mean, you were definitely got a little more existential there at the end than I was considering for the most part. I think going back to the Commander's Master set, uh, you're right that like some of the really weird small stuff might be tough to nail down when we're getting 70 some odd commanders dumped at once because you're not, it's not going to be clear which one's good, which one's popular, which one isn't. And it just, some of that stuff might just get lost in the, the sea of cards and more universal picks are going to be good. And I guess I would say the takeaway there is to shoot for the, what didn't get reprinted. Um, you're going to see a lot of activity on Commander Staples as soon as that full set list drops. And, oh, did did Zendikar Resurgent just get number crunched out in the spoilers? Well, on Wednesday night, it drained. Um, that type of thing. Okay, the full set list just dropped. The, you know, Wayfarer's Bobble didn't, didn't show up. There that one goes. Um, in that sort of like universal card that also didn't get reprinted in Commander Masters. And... At the same time, I think Commander Masters is also represents a pretty big threat. Commander Legends. Commander yeah. Legends, yeah. Legends, Masters, you know, whatever. It represents a pretty big threat just in the, oh, I have 30 foil blind obediences. And that card ended up in the Commander product. Uh, and I just, you know, had my legs cut out from underneath me. And it's like, well, you know, overall, it the set brings with it a lot of opportunities. But if it catches you out on a card you're a little heavier in that's unfortunate for you. But that's at a more micro level than like, oh, is Wizards accidentally going to kill Magic this year? Like, well, that's... Like, I, I, I would be looking to probably be out of things like Cyclonic Rift and Smothering Tithe in the first six months of the year, if I was holding anything like that. Um, because even if it wasn't showing up in Mystery Boosters or whatever, you have to assume it's, it's a possible... Like, some of that really top-tier staple stuff, we'll see a reprint here. Like, Cyclonic Rift is about due for a reprint. It could easily catch one in that set. I don't think I would want to try to hold through it and risk it, um, given that the returns are already good, like really good. Cyclonic Rift's returns have been excellent since Modern Masters 2017. Mm -hmm. So don't be greedy. Get out. 
and 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 you'll be in a much better position as a result no matter whether or not you actually get caught out you're still going to be in a good in a good place to then reinvest those funds into other things that come up as opportunities i mean to the other if if i'm thinking about the top like easiest flip sealed product stuff from 2019 i think we have we'd probably both agree that it is like mythic edition 3 the one with jace the mind sculptor and all that there was easily flippable over 500 um pretty much right away uh japanese war of the spark modern horizons during the first three months if you got in cheap enough and you know flipped it locally when there was a bit of a shortage going on um and then the secret layer bundles which were surprisingly much better than i expected them to be well they were certainly better than everyone expected them to be and then heading into 2020, then you need to. I don't think secret layer bundles. Oh, actually, I guess the other one is collector boosters. Um, although that's more of a group buy thing for us in particular because we've been buying them from Europe at a very attractive price point that makes it hard to go wrong. Um, at full retail, collector boosters are pretty much a wash. Um, so one of the opportunities and threats moving into 2020 is collector boosters are going to be present for every standard set. For sets that ha- are pushed, the collector boosters are likely to be better. For if Theros, for instance, has half as many multi-format playable staples as Eldraine, the collector boosters are going to be full of a lot more garbage. And the hit rate is going to be a lot lower. And that could mean that they are worth less. So committing to collector boosters before you know what that set list looks like is definitely more of a dice roll and i've scaled back my overall commitment to you know i was originally thinking i was going to just get like 20 boxes or something but i haven't seen anything out of theris that really gets my engine revving yet and i'm a bit worried that it, it just won't get there despite the fact that we know everything this year is probably pushed i want to see the pushed cards and then make an evaluation as to whether they're too pushed if I see a bunch of Okos, that actually pushes me away from the product because I don't want bannings to interfere with it. If I see a bunch of multi-format staple stuff like Fabled Passage, that's a different story. So I want more information. And likewise with the secret layer products, I suspect that they're going to make us some good money in 2020. But everybody knows that now. So they're going to sell more. There's going to be more of it in the market the next time around because dealers... A lot of dealers I talked to ahead of Secret Layer opted out. Like they just said, no, like, you know, they didn't sell it to us at wholesale price. So, you know, why would we get involved? They didn't think there was going to be enough meat left on the bone. Turns out they're wrong. They should have bought bundles, flipped the MTGO codes, etc. Worked all the angles and they would have been just fine. They will know that next time and they'll be ready to rock. So, you know, expect your bigger vendors with deeper pockets to be buying 20, 50, 100 units of that stuff. And especially if it escapes the first round's uh, mistake of having too much of a modern focus, given the context of the current landscape of the game. If the other secret layer stuff later this year is more multi-format focused, pioneer focused, EDH focused, and keeping with the themes of the year, (laughs) expect it to be even more popular. We've also only got something like 14 or 16 of the War Stained Glass Planeswalkers so far. So you can expect the next secret layer drop, which I would guess is something like six to eight weeks away, um, to include the rest of them. 
which will certainly help them sell because there's some very good cards left in there um, that we haven't seen yet. And uh, I can see them doing something like a $99.99 secret layer set that, say, has all of the cons of Tarkir fetchlands mm-hmm. with new art. Like, that kind of thing is just perfect. The thing about secret layers is they know they can sell up to $600 products now. There was that Throne of uh, Eldraine collector set or whatever that went for 450 that I flipped for $600. Um, they know what the range is and they know how much the stuff sells at the various price points. They've been gathering that data through all these releases over the last couple of years. So they're going to get, they'll get ballsy with the secret layers. They won't stay $39.99, $49.99. One round will have like a $19.99 version or a $29.99 version, three or four of them. And then there'll be a $49.99, a $69.99 and a $99.99. And they'll try that and see how it goes. The more, and the more they do that, the better their market data gets and the more they will refine that product. They definitely have been setting up to see how much they can push the boundaries. And Secret Layer seems like a really tempting place to do that too. Because they can do $20 sets. And like you said, they can do $600 sets. Um, and they can just go all over the board with that. And not have to yeah. worry that they like overprinted like their $600 product. Because, you know, because uh, they're, they're not going to sell enough. Like they can kind of print those to however much they need or print on demand after the sales. Um, so I definitely see Secret Layer getting some pr- very out-of-the-box products this year, probably later in the year, second now, half. Now, it is tricky because if they go to that well a lot, like if they tried to do it every six weeks, it really starts to piss off the vendors. Like they are selling singles directly here. And it does undermine vendor inventory. Now, if they only do it once a quarter and they limit it to cards that are not super important to the vendors, then that helps maintain those relationships. But if they get real greedy and keep sending the the signals to the vendors while at the same time not fixing their you know, offering a push product all year that is going to keep people away from standard and more dubious in their in overall engagement with the game in general. It, it's straining relationships that don't necessarily need additional strain. Um, so it'll be, I'll, I'll be very interested to look back this time next year and see what they did <laughs> with Secret Layer and other stuff. Because I would guess there's probably one unannounced product, like major product, in the slate for this coming year. I suspect that there is a, might be an early summer product we don't know about yet. And I have no idea what it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't operate on the assumption that we know everything that's coming out next year. As far as wizards relationship dynamic with the local stores. Um, I mean, you, you, you talked about it at length. It's, it's rough. <clears throat> I, I find it. I find it curious and I'm it feels a little surprising that they would continue to burn those bridges kind of the way it feels like they have been like it's hard to believe that they're turning the screws on those local stores as hard as they are uh, because you you just kind of wouldn't expect that to happen but that's kind of what they've been doing are they gonna I, I, I 
I really think that it boils down to them looking at it numerically as opposed to emotionally. As I said a couple weeks ago, the stores still have access to the same number of products, if not more, than they used to, to sell on Magic's behalf. They're just being cut out of some additional products that are high margin that's giving them bad feels. From a player perspective, it's not like the stores would end up cheaper. Like, when they used to sell sell good FTVs to stores, the prices were driven up astronomically. Oh, good yeah. FTVs were very were very hard to find. Yeah, I remember that. And 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 it's not like the stores ever had any motivation to hold tight to MSRP if they were the only source of the product. They are just as likely to screw the player as Wizards is. So it's not like stores will turn the screws to the players whenever they can. So they shouldn't be that surprised that Wizards will do it to them. <laughs> but there there are certainly limits. I mean, you you can lock them out of key products, but you can't lock them out of key products and not give them really strong uh, support in terms of organizing play and screw up the for, you know core formats that you're expecting them to gather people around like standard draft etc by offering up pushed or broken format push cards or broken formats that result in bannings and or pissed off players i i think that wizards underestimates the downside of banning cards like they, they're fully aware it's majorly problematic but i don't think there's enough of an internal culture of making sure something doesn't get banned and i don't think it's the they've represented it as kind of like everything's pushed right now because push cards sell get people excited and sell sets but i see it a little differently i think that if you invest a reasonable amount of money in more money into your um, play test team and give them enough lead time to fully test out a format they will find push cards like Oko. You can adjust the stats on those cards a little further down. Oko could have been tweaked, so it was still a great card. That's the thing. It's not that the card is inherently un- like a design mistake. It's a design mistake at that stat level. If, it, if anything from its casting cost to its one of its pluses being a minus had been tweaked, it might have been fine. So I believe that those are preventable mistakes and that they cost Wizards a lot more to let out the door than it does to fix them internally. And I would like to see them, and word is that they are doing this, that they are going to reinvest in the play design team. I think that one of the reasons that hasn't been um, core to the brand as of late is twofold. One, the Toys R Us bankruptcy a couple of years back really put, ended up with Hasbro pushing, leaning hard on magic vis-a-vis Wizards of the Coast to make them more money. B, part of that shakeout from that was we should be more of an esports brand. Esports is where all the money is, so Magic should be an esports thing. Well, a couple years down the road, it's pretty clear Magic's never going to be a major esport. It's just too complex, too finicky of a game. And Wizards still doesn't have that digital DNA, despite having hired some of it in. But them focusing on digital so hard with internal budgets has probably... is has probably limited play design from really doing the job they could have done had some of that budget been reallocated. Uh, I am not sure that we're on quite the same page here, and that was a lot, so it's it's hard for me to get to it all. But I, I do still think that – I think we even talked about this. 
that probably the people like Aaron Forsyth and Rosewater are not interested in printing cards that are likely to get banned. Like, I think they try and keep magic to generally be fairly, I'm going to say fair and within a certain set of bounds. And I mean, you, I think you were the one who brought it up that they probably had pushed, were pushed from the top level to sell, to, to make more of those cards that were essentially ban worthy. Like, okay, those cards that do that, like get banned or come very close, sell, sell more packs. So make more of those. Not only, I don't want, I don't want you to print Oko this year. I want you to print Oko in every set. Um, and I also kind of wonder if they've looked at their player data and said, for all the griping that happens on social media, bans actually end up making us more money because people buy a bunch of cards and they suddenly stop. And then when we ban it, they all come back and buy more cards. And that's net greater than if they hadn't bought anything at all, or, you know, if they hadn't banned anything. So I don't, you know, we don't have that information, but I do kind of wonder the decisions being made at that level completely agree about the whole digital thing. And it's unfortunate that wizards has pushed this hard. And, you know, I, I, I haven't tuned into a limited GP basically ever. And I remember way before arena and when coverage was still growing significantly thinking like nobody likes to watch limited magic. It's not fun. And constructed magic isn't really that far behind because you have to know way too much to watch it and enjoy it. Like I don't have to know anything about basketball to be able to watch people play basketball. And I don't have to know anything about PUBG or Fortnite to foil Fortnite's a little rougher, but like I can watch PUBG or something like that or uh, apex. And I don't need to know the game to kind of understand what's going on, but like, a guy ripping a random card off the top of his deck and people going nuts. If I don't know every card and play, I'm like, uh, uh, what's going on here? Like, even as a seasoned magic player, I can look at and not quite understand what had happened. Um, it, it, there's a lot of moving parts here, I suppose. I don't know where I don't have a, 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 I don't have a point where I'm going with this. Just kind of sharing some of my thoughts, I guess. I think what, one of the major threats heading into Q1 2020 that is very uh, going to be very important is standard doesn't exist right now. Standard events locally are having trouble firing in all but the hottest markets and standard GPs aren't doing well. We've seen this situation before. There have been bad standards in the last 10 years um, a few different times. They have righted the course, reinvigorated standard, and things have continued on. That has to happen. I strongly believe that standard is a linchpin format for the brand because it is the, the format that most incites players to buy new cards. Commander is clearly the format of 2020. They've signaled that hard. Because they said that. it's all <laughs> they it's wrote the it out other for, materials. <laughs> it's also the format that forces you to buy new cards all the time. I wonder whether they think they can make it all about commander and less about standard. I think that if they've made that decision, they're wrong. And the reason I think that's wrong is because I don't be, I, I don't believe that magic would still exist had they never created the LGS network. If, if organized play had never existed, I don't think Magic would have survived. And I think that's because one of the things that makes you trust your commitment to the brand and your commitment to buying cards 
is that even if your friends stop playing, you can look, go online, find the address of the closest LGS, figure out what they fire and how often and on what days, and you can figure out a day to be there to play some magic. And if that network disappeared completely, and I think standard is a big part of what keeps it rolling, standard and draft, then you're going to have problems. I, I, I think it would be, it doesn't knock the building over, but it's kicking out one of the core pillars. And then you've got a, you're leaning heavily on commander, casual, etc. to make up the difference. Well, and I wouldn't want to run that test live with a billion dollar a year business. I don't know if I've said this explicitly on the cast or not, but I think that if in this in this point we are in agreement, if Wizards thinks that Commander can kind of take over for Standard, they're delusional. There's no way that Standard can or that I'm sorry. There's no way that EDH can be your major staple format in the way that Standard has been. If for no well, other reason that Commander is way too complex for new players. Like, yes, that's one th- of the things. That is, I, and I would see that as essentially the primary, pro- like, the primary problem is that you, it is so hard to begin playing Commander and like to, to ramp up the people who know how to play that it will turn people off. It's just much too much. In standard, you only have to deal with roughly like 60 cards worth of interactions, right? Like how many actually played cards are in a, a typical FNM environment? It's probably, maybe it's more than 60, but it's not really much more than a hundred. Commander, are you kidding me? You could sit down with three other people and play against like 260, 270 unique cards. It is like every time you sit down with different people at a command, at different commander decks, it is a new standard format that you have to learn all the interactions and it's much more complex. So, I mean, I, I don't, you people listening to this don't need to me to explain to you that commander is complicated, but if wizards thinks that they can make that, they're like the format on ramp. Yeah. They're nuts. Um, and the other half of that is the commander doesn't sell packs like standard does, right? Like you have to buy cards to continue to play standard, especially since every time a new set comes out, not only do I want those packs because of the cool new cards, maybe the old cards from the box that's still on the shelf suddenly got important again, and now I need those cards. Whereas in Commander, like I can build, you know, whatever my Rakdos deck, and I haven't changed any cards in that in six years, but that's fine. Like I can still sit down and play with that deck. And like, I do want some new cards for it, but like, I don't have to have them. I can still play with that deck, especially since if my friends haven't like done a ton of updating, like that's fine. Like we're all still roughly in the same place. So, you know, you have this, it does not going to sell cards as well at like the, the, at the pack level. And also you can't give that as a new thing for players to bite into it's it's not an aspirational format the way that legacy and vintage are, but it will definitely turn people off if that's what they're supposed to start with. Yeah, to snap that into focus a little tighter, it's not that I don't think Commander can sell as many cards total as Standard. That's not the issue. It's the on-ramping issue. And in the same way that they're not going to go digital and get rid of paper because they'd rather have dual dual revenue streams, it's the same thing within paper. You'd rather have multiple revenue streams that force you to buy different cards than to have yeah. a single format. Yeah. And and there is a limit to that. Like people keep arguing to me that, oh, modern's gonna rebound, like once people get bored of Pioneer. No. What? I, I completely disagree. <laughs> Who I completely is making disagree. that point? Who Mo- could possibly Mo- say Mo- that? 
lots of people have said that to me on on social and i keep saying the same thing it's not that people aren't going to play modern it's going to be just like legacy in 2013 the people that are already invested that already have decks will continue to modify those decks they might even buy a new deck here and there but you're not going to see a significant increase in modern attendance numbers anywhere you're going to see lgs is running pioneer nights when they used to run modern because they can only get one night they can only get fnm to fire and then maybe one other night they draft and that fnm night will become will be much more likely to be pioneer than it will be to be modern and so commander should exist is is a more casual singleton format casts a much broader net you get to play with a bunch of powerful cards that are banned and everything else at the same time as you're playing with very niche nonsense that isn't useful in any other competitive format that's great because that makes tens of thousands of magic cards or at least ten thousand magic cards that are not playable elsewhere playable that's the brilliance of commander that's why they should be investing in it as a format but you also want people to be playing the cards from the last year or two that gives them a reason to be buying the booster boxes which are still the bulk of magic sales and you want them to have one and i think it's just one eternal-ish format that allows them to keep playing with their cards i i think the four the only four things you need in magic are draft standard edh and something like pioneer everything else is niche and unnecessary and popper you know has a reason to exist vintage has a reason to exist you know whatever you can make arguments for liking a certain way to play things. Like, for instance, I like uh, Battle Bond. I like I like Two-Headed Giant Limited. Um, but I don't expect it to be core for them because it's not, a, it's not necessary to move a certain segment of their set product. Four formats is about as much focus as you can expect the average player to commit to the game. You know, play F&M a couple nights... A month you might have a uh, at-home play group that you play commander with once a month you will attend the modern gp when it rolls into town and you'll you'll draft on arena and occasionally in person that would be a good healthy ecosystem don't knock out any of those pillars but also don't try to spread people too thin between them and if they go all eggs in one basket on commander i think they're going to be disappointed with the result yeah yeah and i i'm i'm on the same the same page is the the beauty of commander is that every card that wasn't good in standard now has a chance to shine over here because they are so fundamentally different in what they want you to do and accomplish um that that does you know that really gets people to do things it, it, it lets you sell both halves of the booster pack essentially and you could argue that that limited is how they sell is standard sells one third of the booster pack edh sells one third and limited sells the rest sells the other third correct um correct and that's a really good model but if you try and cut any of that out like it just doesn't seem like it's bound to succeed i and i i and we've mentioned this before too but i think that they should lean they haven't seemed interested in leaning into the magic as a sort of legacy game with a physical component that they have they can they have that where no one else in the market or the industry does and they're not like really trying to make the most of it um i mean board games have had this crazy 
surge in popularity. I mean, Kickstarter is like half board games now or something um, because people like the objects and the physical stuff. And you've got all these old nerds with a lot of money that want to own cool things that remind them of when they were kids when they didn't have a lot of the digital stuff. And like Magic's got such a good template for that. And they're just like, no, let's pour it all into online. It's like, but that's not what people want out of this, right? Like you're missing the the part of your brand. The gathering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that I remember many years ago talking about what could be bad for Magic. And I was like, look, basically with what you've got going on right now, it's almost bulletproof. But the corporate leadership above the Wizards of the Coast guys has the ultimate say in how this moves. And so far, that corporate leadership, and this I was saying this years ago, so far, this corporate leadership has handled it well. And they've kind of let Wizards of the Coast run the brand how they want to, it seems. But that doesn't mean you're always going to have those people in those chairs. And if you get somebody in there who wants to try and burn the candle at both ends you know, make a lot now and possibly harm the game in the long term, that could happen. And something like trying to pivot to digital and ignore what the game is really there for is exactly the type of like short-sighted executive corporate level decision that could do a lot of damage to the brand and the game over the long term uh, because of some bad decisions by people in higher up who you know don't want to listen to feedback. And if you think that that's not possible, uh, look at every other successful company that takes a nosedive because they get the wrong person in the executive chair. Now, I do think people are reading some of the signals the wrong way or ignoring some signals. Giving the LGS's commander product to sell twice a year, five decks total split between two periods of the year, is a net positive for the LGS owners. Because they're, they're getting to sell more Commander product overall. They are giving them the green foil Commander sets in the summer. Which I presume will not be uh, available for direct purchase online. Um, sure, Secret Leia will continue. But they do get to look forward to selling a ton of Commander Legends before Christmas. That's going to be a gangbusters product. LGSs will make a ton of money on it. And they'll be making a ton of money on the related singles for a significant period of time. Heading out forward from that. The what I would like, and, and also the mystery boosters. The, the the fact that they announced an LGS version of mystery boosters, and you and the fact that it doesn't have the playtest cards, it has some sexy foil subset. It, it is, I think, a net positive. That's going to put butts in seats at the LGS because it's not available anywhere else. You can't, as far as I know, you can't get that stuff at Walmart, etc. Now. If it's available everywhere, but at least the LGS owners have access to it, that's still good. It's just it's not as good as ha- them having an exclusive. But given that they called it the LGS edition, it sounds to me like it's just for them. That says to me that Wizards is not is it do- thinks that they are supporting the LGS. That they, you know these are products that they designed for them. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. But I really I, I really think that the most important short-term indicator is whether standard post stages a comeback on the back of theros if it doesn't um i think you're going to hear more and more stories about lgs's ranking magic as a you know second or third tier product for them and and that will have impl- implications 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you you could reasonably have Theros come out. Standard sucks. Nobody's really playing it. Stores start to see a decrease in their overall magic sales. Like basically everything could look bad for standard and local game stores in the first half of the year. And then it could turn around, right? Like this can shift reasonably quickly in both directions. So I don't see that as it being as completely killing it, right? Like it's not like it's uh, irreplaceable or, or that you can't turn it around. So I guess there's that silver lining. All right. Well, I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary of what we're uh, facing heading into 2020. 2019 has been a big year for Magic, but there are it has not been without hiccups. And we are heading into a period of probably further turbulence alongside some exciting new products and uh, additional refocusing of the brand. So, I mean, I'm excited to still be a part of MTG Finance. I don't expect that my overall participation personally will be reduced this year, but I will certainly be looking to be pretty tactical in terms of how I deploy and execute. Um, and if I didn't make it clear earlier, I'd certainly be trying to get out of modern specs as much as I can. Ooh, yeah. at, least modern, at least modern specific specs. If a spec is good in EDH, Pioneer, and modern, I don't think you need to be in a rush. Like I'm not dying to unload Urza, but I'd be more interested in unloading Urza than I would Castle Lockthwain. You know, Castle Lockthwain has potential in all three formats. If people stop buying Urza for Modern, then you're leaning only on Commander. And, you know, that's going to see a low before it sees a fresh high. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, well, when I went, when Pioneer, shortly after Pioneer was announced and I decided to get out of the way of, of Modern, I went through and I pulled everything that was Modern only. And that got buy listed. But cards that worked in, in multiple formats I held on to because, you know, a card that was good in modern EDH is still good in EDH even if no one's playing really playing modern. But if it was Abru- mo- abrupt decay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But strictly modern, it's like, yeah, this is you know what, I'm I, I'm not interested in having to think about this. Like Path to Exile, for instance, is a good one. They're printing that gorgeous stained glass Path to Exile promo. But am I looking to buy new Path to Exiles? I mean, not for my modern deck. Yeah, who 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 cares enough that that's something to they spend have, extra? Yeah, that they have to go buy. All right, that's a wrap for this week, episode two hundred. Congratulations, partner! It's uh, it's been a pleasure overall, and uh, I think we did some good work here for people this year. And over the course of two hundred episodes, hopefully, uh, folks will join us uh, next week as uh mgg fast finance kicks off 2020 i i like the i like to think that this was valuable for people that they enjoyed it uh we've tried our best here for you um good job team we did it good job cliff you can hear us out there in the ether thank you cliff (laughs) and uh thanks to the entire uh mgg price pro trader membership um for really enhancing the the value of the uh, pro trader program uh, for each other um, and for us um, through I, I you know I think we're running one of the best damn magic communities online online magic communities anywhere to be honest um, people are kind to each other helpful productive efficient logical um, just people getting deals done cross-border arbitrage helping people ship stuff 
covering each other's sales if there's a problem, all sorts of things going on. It's just a great, great community. If you have not considered joining, maybe 2020 will be your year. Um, that is a wrap for us this week. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com, and I am constantly haunting the aforementioned Discord uh, for the pro traders. How about you, Travis? I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price, doing the Watchtower series, and of course, I'm here on the podcast. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service at MTGPrice.com. For just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of MTG Fast Finance Podcast 200, Travis. I have really enjoyed our discussion today. I think we covered as as many bases as you can in three hours. Oh, God, has it been three hours? Thank you, Travis. Oh, my God. See you guys all next week (laughs) on episode 201. (laughs) Mm-hmm.